and I'm going to blow your mind here. Uh, I'm not white. What? I know. I know. Are you Sorry, sure? Big D. Surprise. Yeah. Oh, come on. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the queen of all HBO shows, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our fan mail edition, where we look back at this week's Game of Thrones and provide our feedback on the top listener emails and voicemails for the week. This week's episode was entitled, The Bells. You spent an hour listening to our ideas from Tuesday's Deep Dive. Now it's our turn to hear from you. And it's interesting on this one because the worst rated Game of Thrones episode ever brought us some of the most thoughtful listener mail of the series. And I wanted to extend a thank you to the audience. As a note, to save time, we trim a lot of these, but you can find them in their entirety at shadontv.com. So if you hear an email, you hear a voicemail, you want to hear more about that, chances are there is more. If you go to shadontv.com, and go to the small council under Game of Thrones, you can read all of these and explore and respond to them. So part of the trimming for this show that we do to get things tighter uh, is not always reading all the kind thoughts and the words of encouragement that you send in your emails. And so I just wanted to take a second as a blanket and personally thank the listenership for sticking with us, for writing the email, for sending the voicemail, uh, for writing the iTunes reviews and subscribing to the podcast and just making us a part of your lives. Those thank yous and those great points and those stories about how we make a difference to you really make a difference to us. So I hope we stay in touch for many years to come. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and if you emailed into this uh, small council, I'm assuming that you got the auto reply from our email address. And the reason we did that is because we are so buried. I mean, we this is the most email we've gotten for Game of Thrones. And we're pushing the capacity that, that the two of us can handle. So it's email, social media, editing, posting, the website. So if we don't reply back to you, trust me, we're reading them. And the motivation that you put in and the thanks and the thought, it means a lot to us. And last week, we did something that we don't always do, where we mentioned the people who have been kind and supported the podcast financially. And the, the outpouring was really nice. We got a bunch of people who gave a couple bucks each, and it really helps. I'm not going to do that again this week, but I want to thank the people who did and let you guys know that Game of Thrones is the largest podcast that that we've done. It's bigger than Westworld. Uh, and if you've enjoyed listening to us, if you've uh, enjoyed the time we've spent, if you've sent an email, if we've given you a little joy, a couple bucks goes a long way. And And what that'll do is not only get us through Game of Thrones, but the rest of the year. That keeps everything going for the movies, for Watchmen, for other series that are coming up uh, and other things that we're looking at doing. So if you have it in your heart, if you can, a couple bucks, it goes a long way because the prices and, and what it costs us just to keep the machine running every month, uh, you, you'd be surprised. If you can't, recommend us to a friend. That's good too. But uh, we appreciate you all out there and, and the support you've given us, emails, social media. That means a lot too, but unfortunately that doesn't keep the lights on. 
Also, if you don't get a reply to your email in your inbox, I am replying to those on ShadowTV.com. Uh, so if you go to ShadowTV.com, go to Game of Thrones and go to the Small Council, uh, I'm slowly but surely getting through those uh, and responding to you there. So don't feel like it's fallen on deaf ears if you're not on the podcast. Uh, we are replying to you. And that is my, uh, <laughs> that is my spring reading <laughs> list for this year. So thanks, everyone, for writing in. Uh, Big D, I think without further ado, we should jump into these. We've got uh, a ton of email to go through and voicemail. We're doing an expanded, uh, supersized podcast this week. Uh, so let's get rolling. Take us to the small council. Shame. 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 The biggest topic this week was Daenerys, uh, whether she's the Mad Queen. And it was really the focus of what we did on the deep dive as well. Uh, so our first email comes from listener Vasily who writes in and says, I got to say, I'm getting tired of hearing about the Mad Queen and all questions of her sanity. I think it's garbage. She's mad, as in pissed off, as she should be. Her best friend was killed in front of her eyes. Her biggest enemy is hiding behind a human shield she created in King's Landing by opening the doors to the people, trying to play on Danny's love of the people. Danny didn't just go crazy out of nowhere and burn the whole city to the ground. She's been wanting this for a long time. And when she first said it back in season seven, when we all would agree she wasn't crazy. Furthermore, there is a great cinematic shot when the Lannister army threw down their arms and the camera pans out and you see every single alleyway flooded with soldiers. You know, as Danny is up on that perch, she sees this too. So in that moment, she's probably thinking, look at all these assholes all lined up and hiding up there is Cersei. She's lied to me time and time again. You know Cersei can't be trusted, and the Lannisters, we all know, need to die because they're all bad dudes with those ugly helmets, so let them burn. I think she needed to do this the whole time, and I loved it. I hate we are labeling her as mad because she did what she said she would, and that comes from Vasily. <laughs> I really like this one. I think he's right. She's pissed off. The only reason that we're bringing up her, her mental state or if she has some kind of a mental condition is her family heritage. If her family members hadn't had a history of mental illness, I don't think we'd be bringing it up. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier in the books that there were times where where Daenerys is questioning her own sanity and hearing things, or she's questioning it. We've never seen that in the show. She's fairly normal, but she's understandably pissed off because everybody keeps failing her. So we had two other listeners write in and compare Daenerys' acts to acts in, in real life, in war, and a regular listener and writer, Ken L. wrote in, and he said, uh, George R.R. R. Martin has gone on record saying that dragons are an analogy to nuclear weapons. In the real world, reasonable minds debate over whether the United States bombing of Japan in World War II is justified. The war in the Pacific was still raging on, and the U.S. was facing an inevitable massive loss of life if it invaded on foot. Yet, given the vast devastation caused by these weapons, people remain unsure if it was moral to drop those bombs. But we don't have to look at the attack on King's Landing with nearly that level of scrutiny. The answer is clear. What Danny did would be the equivalent of bombing Tokyo after Japan surrendered. What Danny did was ghastly and unforgivable. There is no justification for her actions, which amount to, unequivocally, the evilest thing that any character has done this entire series. This surpasses anything Ramsay or Joffrey ever did. It dwarfs Cersei's bombing of the Sept. It is a worse breach of agreed-upon morals than the Red Wedding. The only person to rival Danny is the Night King, but only because he had several thousand years head start and is not a human being. 
It's not shown on screen, but Daenerys Targaryen, with statistical near certainty, killed thousands upon thousands of children by burning them alive in this episode. And that comes from Ken L. Here's the problem, and we have a voicemail later on that talks about this. We are trying to impose modern morals on a world that, that it's like Conan. You remember where, where they're going around, they're raping and pillaging. We'd be like, that's just absolutely terrible. And yes, it is terrible. But guess what? Back in the medieval times, this happened in the feudal states. If you did have protection, uh, you were going to get raped. You, there was going to be pillaging and that happened. So we can't expect this television show to hold our modern morals uh, because it's just not realistic. Uh, two points on this. Ken, first of all, the bombing of Nagasaki actually is more largely debated than Hiroshima in the sense that Japan was cut off uh, from supplies. Uh, it knew it was losing the war. Uh, and Truman, I don't think, was even aware of the full effect of Hiroshima before we dropped bombs on Nagasaki. In fact, Truman didn't even order the bombings. He, he ordered a stop to the bombings. Uh, so it is it is debatable whether the U.S. used Nagasaki as a platform to show the Soviets what we were capable of with atomic weapons. Nobody had seen anything like this. It was the second time and the last time that an atomic bomb was used uh, in war. Uh, with regards to the people in King's Landing, <laughs> let's call that our real world, uh, I think we do get an indication, though, from John's reaction and especially from Tyrion's reaction that this is way outside uh, the rules and uh, something that is horrific to both of them. Now, that could be specific to Daenerys, that they believed in her and she failed them. But I think Tyrion, when he was making that speech about the bells and, you know, make sure we call it off the bells, I think he really thought that would have been a, a plausible resolution to this. And I don't think Daenerys was on the same page. We got another email from Erica uh, writing in about this, and she says, that uh, George R. R. Martin has always sought to convey a message about the horrors of war. Without this kind of unnecessary bloodbath, it would have been too easy to be swept up in the visual masterpiece of the filming in favor of battle. Within the ash, especially the scene of the burnt girl holding the horse, I felt strong visual parallels to the aftermath of the nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For the first time in the season, I saw George R. R. Martin in the plot as his potential commentary on the morality of using extreme force, even with good intentions to break the wheel, seems exactly up his alley. He has criticized the simplicity of good and evil in Lord of the Rings, and in these scenes we see how evil and good lies on all sides and within humanity itself. From the northerner John killing to save a woman to the mother that saved Arya, there is no clear good and evil. Despite the numerous flaws, the pure destructive power of war was effectively conveyed. All the best from Germany, Erica Trujillo. Well, I think George may always want to convey the message about the horrors of war, but the double Ds did not effectively do that. Everyone who watched this was like, fuck yeah, woo, she's blowing up the city. Even though we have John and those few like Saving Private Ryan moments where time slows down and the audio drops out and he's looking at the Northmen starting to become the bad guys. The Lannister soldiers are trying to, you know, usher people to safety and it slows down. But if you're trying to get a message here, the horrors of war, you can also glorify it with these amazing, fantastic dragon special effects where they're blowing up the buildings and people are cheering. <laughs> that might not have been George's original intent. Yeah. I don't think he anticipated everybody going, get a bigger, cooler TV. To watch all these people get fried to death. 
Uh, thanks for writing in, Erica. Next up, we have an email from Wouter Bars, who says, Hi, guys. Thanks for guiding us through this whirlwind of a season. Just to let you know, you're not doing this just for HBO's home country, but for viewers and podcast listeners from all over the world, in my case, from the Netherlands. I'm really enjoying watching the episodes and then extending the experience by listening to your Instacast, Deep Dive, and Small Council. Here's my subtle attempt to be included in one of them. I'm emailing you for two reasons. One, I always enjoy non-Dutch speaking people trying to pronounce my name. And two, I recognize your ambiguity in the Instacast for episode five, The Bells. I have the same struggle within myself. To get a bit more distance and not overanalyze anything, I tried taking a step back. Did I enjoy watching the episode? The answer to this question is hell yeah. After 80 minutes or so, I thought, is it over already? It really flew by, which I think is a good thing. It wasn't perfect, but a mediocre Game of Thrones episode is still considered world-class in my book. There may be some disappointing or anticlimactic moments, but they still were fitting. Ironically, Daenerys' massacre does make her the Queen of Ashes she told Tyrion she had no desire to become. It also calls back to the vision she had in Season two's finale at the House of the Undying showing a destroyed throne room. What I presume to be snow could very well be ashes. The vision ends with Daenerys walking away from the throne through the gate in the wall. To me, after episode five, her arc is almost complete and she will get ready to die. I don't see her keeping the throne, but she has wiped the slate clean for a new ruler to rebuild a better Westeros. Do you agree on this take? Best regards from the lowlands, Wouter Bars. So I think he's punking us. I, I think he's trying to get us to say wunderbar. So no, I looked it up. A router uh, would be the um, English pronunciation, and the American pronunciation, I believe, would be Wouter. And it, it's actually Dutch for leader of warriors, I believe. Wow. And Bars is, and th- those are both very common first and last names for the Dutch. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm still going to stick with Wunderbar. So, yeah, you know, what we've seen play out in King's Landing, it matches the visions of not only. Daenerys, but also Bran. Bran sees the, uh, he sees Drogon's shadow, he sees the throne room, uh, and something kind of clicked with me over the last two days. All of a sudden, Tyrion became real confident about what's going to happen. When Jamie says, you know, you guys are depleted, you're not going to win, he goes, yes, the walls will fall tomorrow. Yes, the city will be taken over. Go get Cersei. He seemed oddly confident all of a sudden. I'm starting to think that that conversation he had with Bran in the library of Winterfell kind of maybe told him what had happened. And Daenerys also in her mind must remember that premonition. So maybe she thinks, you know what? I've been listening to my advisors and it's gotten me nowhere. Why don't I listen to what I've seen and let's make that happen? That also might explain why Tyrion was so comfortable just waltzing in mm-hmm. <laughs> amid all the combat with no security or weapon in his hand. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Wouter, for your email. Uh, Next up, we have one from Matthew Wilkie, who writes in, I'm anticipating you'll likely receive a lot of negativity around the latest Game of Thrones episode, and I think the majority is likely to be warranted and understand. As a fan of the show, I feel the last two series have been a diversion from what made the show so special in the first place. I haven't felt the unexpected emotional response to any events in the past few years. Nothing that comes close to the Red Wedding, Oberyn's death, and of course, Ned's beheading. But this got me thinking, exactly why is this? 
I personally don't think it is necessarily the overall story the Double Ds have chosen to tell. I think it's more in the detail of how they've chosen to tell it. We have departed from the unexpected and often the reality in preference of movie-like payoff moments, such as shooting down a dragon with three out of three arrows, Jamie just happens to meet Euron on the beach, way too many survivors from the Battle of Winterfell, etc. Just look at the Hound. In previous seasons, he would have simply had his head crushed. And although this isn't the fairy tale ending, it's probably what should have happened. Instead, a heroic movie-type death into the burning fire with his brother. This is not Game of Thrones. Arya leaving when she is literally minutes from seeing Cersei again. No way. The Hound tells her to leave. In earlier season, Arya would have told him to fuck off and beat him into the throne room. There is even a story to be told in how they got into King's Landing and how they got into the Red Keep. I can't dispute the cinematography of any of the episodes. Amazing. But somewhere along the way, this has become more important than the story, and we lost what made the series unique and special. That comes from Matthew Wilkie. So, Matthew, I I agree with most of what you're saying, but I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. The show from the beginning to the end, then there's the middle. When you're in the middle, you don't know where you are exactly, how far along in the journey. So the Red Wedding comes along. You're thinking, eh, Rob's going to go a little bit longer. You know, Catelyn Stark, these are characters we're going to, and then boom, they're dead. You're like, holy shit. But we're now at the end of the road. All the roads are converging. They're coming back together. There's not too many options. So our own disappointment is in what we're expecting to happen, but there is no way to surprise us. Did anybody think Cersei wasn't going to die? Did anybody think the Mountain and the Hound weren't going to get together? You kind of knew all these things were going to happen. Yeah, it happened a little faster, but it's almost impossible to surprise us at this point. Thanks for writing in. Next up, we have Gary Ali from the UK who writes in, Hello, guys, UK listener to the podcast, which I've enjoyed immensely. I can't help but think that the preferred route for Danny's escalation to mass genocide ought to have been as follows. Rhaegal is not killed off in the previous episode by a frankly implausible surprise shot from a scorpion mounted on Euron's ship. Rather, in the bells, Danny actually accedes to the surrender when the bells toll. She manages to quell her anger. However, at that moment, out of fear or otherwise, a stray marksman fires a scorpion shot. This kills Rhaegal. At that moment, Danny's anger cannot be contained. Some would argue reasonably so. She has shown one last act of mercy, and even this has been met by another severe betrayal. This is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Upon seeing her child dragon fall to a bloody heap in the Red Keep, a red mist descends and Danny proceeds to torch the entire city. Having become acquainted with her character, that intuitively feels like a more likely progression to the events at the end of The Bells. But hey, it is what it is, and I still enjoy the episode and your instant take. Keep up the good work for one more episode. Best wishes, Gary Ali in the UK. So Gary's fan fiction here, his alternate way you could have done this, it's very similar to an article that was in Deadspin called A Better Way That Game of Thrones Could Have Arrived at This. Uh, and I'm going to let you take the first stab at this because I already know how you feel about this because I brought it up to you before the deep dive. So you take the first half. So, Gary, if this had happened on the show, I wouldn't complain about it. I wouldn't say, like, that's garbage. It would never happen that way. But the showrunners, the writers, everybody involved in this made a decision to have the story play out this way. And it was very intentional. I should 
preface this by saying I really hated Rhaegal just getting shot down by three consecutive bolts off of a boat. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Probably the low point of season eight for me. I just thought it was ridiculous. I would have been more impressed if they just had him get exhausted and fall into the ocean, quite frankly. But what would happen in this scene if you changed it up like that? And you had Rhaegal there, the surrender was underway, and a bolt hit Rhaegal and killed him. Is now Daenerys is reacting to a singular event and she's being impulsive, as opposed to being reactive, being proactive in the sense that she made this decision. So by having her react to something, you actually remove her agency, right? It's why you have third degree ver- murder versus first degree murder, right? It's the fact that it was premeditated. It was the fact that she made a conscious decision. And whether that decision was made before the attack began or as she looked at the Red Keep, nobody pushed her over the edge in that moment. She made a decision based on everything that had happened up until this point that she wanted to kill, that she wanted to cause massive destruction. And if you had it being as a result of something emotional and immediate, like her dragon being killed, it changes the story completely. So, but I think you're undercut by the behind the scenes. And they said that she had not planned to to burn the city to the ground. That sitting on the wall, it all became too much and she decided to make it personal. Okay. So in that moment, she was reacting to her emotions. She was thinking about Miss Sandy. She was thinking about everything that's happened. She was thinking about her family history. She's looking at the Red Keep. To me, there's no difference to her remembering all the things that have happened to her or immediately Rhaegal getting shot. Both of those are triggers, but the Rhaegal would explain the immediate 180 degree turn as opposed to the bells are ringing. I've won the war. I'm going to burn it anyway, as opposed to just being like, I gave you a chance. You could have surrendered. And this is what I get. You'll never get that chance again. All right, I can kill this argument really quickly. Everybody right now, go to your nearest streaming device and pull up the end scene of the movie Seven. You got Brad Pitt. He's got his gun on Kevin Spacey. Spoiler. I'm going to spoil Seven for you. So guys, if you haven't seen it, fast forward. Uh, He's got his gun on Kevin Spacey. And it's a very different scene if Kevin Spacey mentally drives Brad Pitt over the edge and Brad Pitt shoots him and kills him versus... Kevin Spacey turns around and Brad Pitt thinks he has a gun and he shoots him and kills him, right? Both the reactions, both have a cause and effect, but one is a reaction to an immediate circumstance and one is a reaction to immediate circumstance uh, wanting vengeance. Uh, the difference here is that is that John Doe wanted him to willingly take that choice to become wrath. Cersei didn't want Daenerys to become wrath. She didn't want to become wrath. Okay, so no, Kevin Spacey pulling out a gun is not the same here. It would have been Daenerys trying to do the right thing and then being provoked one last time that puts her over the edge. That's funny because Cersei did open the gates. She did use human shields. It's almost like she wanted to provoke Daenerys into doing something like massacre people. (laughs) No, no, no. Nobody would have wanted to invite that dragon fire. Everybody gets burned in that case. Uh, Thanks for writing in, Gary. Uh, Next up, we have CCB Cannon, who says, Hey, guys, one thing I think people miss about Daenerys' executions by Dragonfire is that Dragonfire is really just her weapon. Ned, Rob, John, the Mountain, they used a sword to execute. The Boltons flayed men. Daenerys' weapon and method is Dragonfire. I think people miss this in an effort to paint her as cruel. Also, I see her mentality of complete destruction of her enemies as not just a Targaryen mad queen trait, 
The people in Essos are very different from those in Westeros. They are more brutal, and the rules there are to destroy your enemy completely. That is the Dothraki way of life, and Dario also schooled her to completely eliminate her enemies. Not saying it's right, but that's a societal difference that should be taken into account as to what helped shape her way of thinking. Thanks for the great podcast. I've enjoyed listening to you guys. C.C. Buchanan. Eh, see, I don't, I don't remember Ned running through the village, pulling out his sword and just beheading people left and right. I do remember the free folk, in, including Tormund, when they were raiding some of the uh, the villages south of the wall, some of the farms. So I don't think that's an even parallel. Yes, it's her weapon, but it's a very big weapon as opposed to a a, a more surgical weapon like a sword. Right, but the point that C.C. Buchanan is making here is that Daenerys is from Essos. I mean, she she was basically raised in Essos. And so the people that she comes from, the Dothraki uh, and, and, and Dario, uh, she was taught a different way. And people have even pointed out that we were not nearly as horrified when she committed atrocities overseas. But as soon as you brought it to Westeros, uh, and this could be seen as a Middle East versus a Europe sort of thing, that now people are more sensitive to it because it is a civilized society or there are white people there. No, I don't buy that. I think it's just the sheer scale. Uh, yeah, she was burning people in Essos, but it was a smaller group. It's different if I go out and I kill 10 people or I go out and I kill 1,000 people. There's a difference in that. All right, next up, we've got one uh, from Candy from Charlotte who just flat out says, uh, I hate Danny. The scene with Danny and John from episode four, where she is telling him not to tell his family, still makes me angry. This is the moment it was solidified for me that Daenerys is a monster. She says the throne is rightfully hers, but it's not. I mean, it sucks she did all she did to get where she is with the goal of being queen, but sucks to suck. The truth about who John is is his truth to tell. And if he wants to tell his family and Daenerys really loved John, she would understand that asking him to not to tell them is just not an option. John never swore he wouldn't tell Sansa and Arya, and it should never have been implied by her that he wouldn't. If she cared about what was right and just, then the conversation shouldn't be, don't tell anyone. It should have been, how do we tell the world and where do we go from here? Daenerys showed in this that she is a party of one. She doesn't care about John or what's right. All she cares about is being queen, and it doesn't matter how many people have to die to make that happen. Episode five, prove that. See, and I don't want to step on any toes because we got a good voicemail coming up here. Uh, but but one of our one of our voicemails has to do with John being the true villain. That if John had just sucked it up, kept the secret, and married Daenerys, guess what? Everyone in King's Landing is alive and happy. So I don't want to step on that because that's coming later on. But I think Daenerys's tact with John was wrong. She tried to play on his emotional connection to her. She should have broke it down for what it was and said, John, listen, I love you, but you're not that bright. You've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you don't see how this is going to go. You trust your sisters. You trust people. You trust the Black Brothers. That's why I got stabbed in the heart. John, dear, honey, honey, come here. Hug me. Listen, let's just keep this secret with mommy and we'll all get out of this okay. Or auntie. I feel like auntie, it would be yes, yes. big day. I feel like it would have been that, but with like a puppet show too. Like, okay, John, look, this <laughs> yeah, is us. Yeah. This is yeah. the people of King's Landing. Yeah, that's it. That would work. <laughs> Thanks, Candy, for writing in. Uh, aside from writing in about the Mad Queen, obviously, a lot of people love this episode. A lot of people hated it. So we're going to dive into that. And first, we'll start with the people who love this episode, or at least appreciated it. And the first one comes from Gabby from San Diego. And she writes, 
I wanted to take a moment to thank you for putting your judgments aside to podcast about the actual episode of Game of Thrones and not how the showrunners allegedly did everything wrong. While listening to the deep dive today, Gene said the team of Game of Thrones worked very hard to satisfy an audience that cannot be satisfied. I agree 100%. It is a total slap in the face of the entire cast and crew who put their blood, sweat, and tears into this show for eight seasons. Remember, Game of Thrones was born from a collective vision of two guys who loved and adored this book series. They, in turn, got the audience, cast, and crew to buy into that same passion and created something amazing. The audience turned on the showrunners like the people of King's Landing turned on Ned Stark and Cersei. They're ready to put their heads on a stake for all the wrongs that were done to them. I feel this anger is completely misdirected. Instead of being mad at the showrunners, be mad at the characters. Game of Thrones has never hidden the fact that their characters have very dark sides. Thank you for staying committed to reviewing the show and not the writers and production crew. Thank you for acknowledging what the show has accomplished and not that everyone is going to be happy. In the big picture, we've been part of a historic moment in TV. You got to and get to be a big part of that moment via podcasting. Life is pretty good in the real world, better than King's Landing. Uh, So, Gabby, I disagree with you completely. We should not be mad at the characters. We should be mad at George. George is a sack of shit, okay? When the Double D started this production 10 years ago, he promised them, I will give you the source material. It will be done. Okay, so they undertook this. I mean, the scale of the show is off the charts. And for those seasons where they had the material, it was dynamite. They were clicking. But then George, whether he has writer's block or whatever it is, he failed them. So they're doing their best to land this ship. They're not the creative source behind the material. So they're doing the best they can going from showrunners to to creating the actual story. And don't ever question their dedication to it. All you have to do is watch the behind the scenes and see the detail and the effort that went into it. Yes, the landing might have been a little rougher than we liked, but their intent was there. But after 10 years, they got to be like, you know what? Why am I doing George's job for him? Screw him. We're going to do it the way we want. If you're not happy, you're not happy. Blame him. Tell him to pick up the typewriter and start typing. And listener Rob wrote in with a thought that dovetails beautifully off of that. He said, I listened to a couple podcasts and checked out the internet, and it seems like a lot of people are giving Benioff and Vice a lot of grief regarding this season and season six and seven. I heard things like they're terrible, they're lazy writers, they ruin the show, and they shouldn't be allowed near anything, especially Star Wars, et cetera, et cetera. I think all that's very unfair. I challenge anyone to read three quarters of any bestseller and then, using your own imagination, finish writing the book. Imagine the difficulty in trying to do something like that. Now, imagine trying to do that when there are five books of a seven-book series where the story and characters are extremely complex and literally everything is still up in the air. George R.R. Martin himself is having problems finishing the story. If he's having a hard time, how is anyone else supposed to do it and do it as well as the original author? There's a reason why the Oscars have two separate categories, one for original screenplay and one for adapted screenplay. If the first five seasons were Benioff and Weiss's original screenplay and they screwed it up for the last three seasons, then fine, blame them all you want. But that's not the case. I'm pretty sure that George R.R. Martin thought he would have the books finished by now, and that's why they and HBO decided to go forward. Yeah, thank God the other day George tweeted, he's still working on the winds of winter. Thanks, George. (laughs) Appreciate it. And thanks, Rob, for writing in. Uh, Next up, we have Mike McDonald, who says, 
It seems that fans of the show are victims of our own expectations. We fell in love with Game of Thrones because it completely defied expectations early on, Ned Stark's execution being the most prominent example. However, eight seasons in, we've invested so much time and energy into the show that we now feel entitled to certain outcomes. This episode was a big reminder that our expectations don't matter. All the fans that spent time theorizing who will kill Cersei likely screamed, what the fuck, when she was pummeled by a pile of rocks. How many other theories and expectations were crushed just like that? I love this episode because the whole time I was totally thrown off by what was going on. No one was safe and characters were flipped upside down. For a brief moment, I actually felt sorry for Cersei. Can we take a second to appreciate how good a show has to be to do that? She has been the villain from day one, and I've been waiting for her death for so many seasons. But as she was crying about wanting her baby to live, I found myself hoping they would find a way out. I've been rooting for Daenerys all along, and now I hope Arya kills her in the series finale. The episode was nothing like I thought it would be, and I loved every minute of it. Everything has changed. Jean did not mention crying at all in the Instacast, but I'm willing to bet there were some tears shed. Tyrion saying goodbye to Varys. Tyrion freeing Jaime, the Hound convincing Arya not to be like him, Jaime and Cersei, Arya seeing the mom and daughter roasted in the street. There were some definite tear-worthy moments in this episode. I actually found myself choked up at several of them. Well, Mike, I hate to say I felt almost nothing during this episode. And I think a lot of people wrote in about that too. Uh, People writing in saying they were cuddled up on the couch with a box of Kleenex getting ready to go. And you know what? Episode two made me cry without a battle. And I think it was the massive scale of this, but also some of those examples you gave me all felt weird. So Tyrion saying goodbye to Varys was sad, but I think I was more overcome with anxiety or fear for Varys. And and there was that amazing shot where Drogon's face comes out of the darkness. And I was just in awe of that. But Tyrion freeing Jaime just seemed weird to me. Like the Unsullied are just like, yeah, all right, yeah, go ahead. And then he's just like, he lets Jaime loose how did Jamie get out of there and then get into King's Landing? It felt a little weird to me. So I spent a lot of time being confused rather than emotional, but I agree this episode did flip everything on its head and I was very entertained throughout. Thanks, Mike, for writing in. And now we have perhaps the most positive email of the entire season. It comes from Remy, who says, I may be the only person that believes season eight has been perfect. I had no expectations of it going my way or the creator proving my theories right, so I have no disappointments to lament over. All I wanted was it to end by defying my expectations, and this episode did. I didn't realize how much I had been fed up with what the show had put me through until Daenerys' annihilation of King's Landing. We've lived through eight seasons of rape, games, backstabbing, intrigue, violence, mutilations, animal abuse, and exploitative behavior from all the characters that left me exhausted, and I didn't know how exhausted until she continued to burn things down well past my comfort zone, and then I felt liberated. So, Remy, I, I got to love your outlook here, uh, and I want to I ask you for a favor. Please go to iTunes and write us a review, uh, because if you're writing this about season eight, our iTunes review, it's going to be like seven stars. You're going to push it beyond the five max. It's going to be awesome. But I won't even say anything negative because you have just such a positive outlook on it. Yeah, thank you in advance for the uh, five-star review, Remy. Next up, we have one from Angie Sebastian, who writes in, the people who love this story don't want Daenerys to be a monster because they met her when she was a child. Then her brother sold her to a stranger. 
And as she grew into a queen, the viewer's love for Daenerys has always justified. No matter the odds, she prevailed. Each season, she gained more faithful subject, more loot, bigger dragons. And much like a beloved relative who turns out to be a bad human being, they feel betrayed. They love Daenerys and they don't want her to be bad. And while we don't yet know what happens to the throne of ashes or the north, or if Bran ever smiles again, we know what happened to Daenerys. In the end, despite our love, she's bad. And now the show's fans are screaming that it's all a lie, that she would never burn a city to the ground because she freed slaves and marine and loves Jon Snow and has known terrible anguish. This goes double for Sir Jamie. But the subtext of the story has always shown through if you care to see it. One, anyone who wants the Iron Throne will do terrible things to get it or keep it, period. Two, people are good and bad and often at the same time. But now our watch is nearly ended and we hold our breath as we turn the final page to know the fate of our friends. And however it turns out, little doves, remember, all stories end. Now go the fuck to sleep. You guys are smart analysts. Good job, Angie. So I know a lot of people out there, they love Daenerys and they want her to be the hero. But I want to know where the fuck they went. We got like two or three one stars on iTunes where people wrote in, it's terrible that you're projecting madness onto her. You don't do that to male leaders. And I wrote back, I was like, "Eh -eh, that didn't age too well. Don't tell us what we thought. The show now, she is clearly as bad as Ramsey Bolton. You know what? You were vocal when you thought we were wrong. Why have you now curled up under the blanket on the couch and hiding? You better pick up the phone and say you're sorry. You know who you are. Damn, Big D coming in with the fire. Yeah, I'm like I'm like Daenerys. I just got <laughs> pissed off. The bells are ringing. That fucking one star. I just started flying. <laughs> My favorites are the ones that like say something horribly mean, but then they're like four stars. I'm like, all right, fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like they don't know how the, the star system works. I'm like, yeah. is the stars wrong or were the words wrong? I no, they're doing wrong. chat scores. They're just <laughs> they're all fucked up. Yeah. All right, next up we have Bryce from Salt Lake City. He says, uh, I want to say thank you to everyone out there who has loved Game of Thrones as much as all of us. This show took us to a new place that we had never seen before, and I know we're all going to miss it. Regardless of how everyone feels about the last few seasons, I think it's worth it to reflect at how amazing the journey was collectively. After all, the show is fantastic because it transports us into an entirely new world. We know what the fabrics of Cersei's clothing feel like. We know the smell of flea bottom." We can literally go out and get horns of ale at bars now. But other than falling into this amazing world, we talk about it. I don't know if there are many people out there just like me, but I read all the Ice and Fire books and Lord of the Rings all the damn time in high school, and people thought I was a bit of a weirdo sometimes. Now, everyone gets to see a world that I have loved for years and make podcasts and review videos about it. It is seriously the coolest thing as anxiety-ridden and stuttering college student like myself being able to talk about dragons and knights and quests with anyone because we all bent the knee for this show. Seven blessings, Bryce from Salt Lake City. So let's roll the the clock back to when the show started. It was a different world. There was no streaming services. Binging did not exist, right? So we all started this journey together. This show is one of the biggest in history. This finale is going to be enormous. That might never happen again. When you have like shows you can binge, like uh, Stranger Things, right? I might sit in a weekend and binge it all. You might sit and watch two episodes every couple of days. It's never a collective experience. So even though right now half the audience thinks this is shit 
half the audience thinks it's great, appreciate this for what it is. Because after this, we might not have this large of an audience all watching the same content, talking about it on Monday morning ever again, because streaming's only going to become more prevalent. And Bryce, is a personal message from me to you uh, as a fellow huge dork. You know, the King B and I grew up with comic books and, you know, I was reading Lord of the Rings as a kid as well. And we were dorks. And so when people watch the Marvel movies now or even the DC movies and they complain about it, uh, how it's going to mainstream and stuff like that, there are some of us. I mean, I love the Watchmen movie and people are like, oh, it's garbage, whatever. The, the point is that for those of us who never thought we would live, I'm getting emotional right now talking about it. For those of us who never thought we would live to see this stuff on screen. Uh, okay. I'm going to cry. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's huge. Like it is huge to have uh, these things that we dreamed about uh, put on a screen in front of us. And I get it, man. Wow. I get getting emotional there. Yeah, no, seriously. I get it. Like it's, uh, I remember. I just. I remember the first time Marvel started that that flipping comic thing that they do at the beginning of the movies, and you saw this like these panels getting animated, and it just it, it blows your mind. And uh, as somebody who plays, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, and and I think tried to read Elvish as, at once, and and can read Dwarven. Uh, it's it, it's huge to have this stuff realized, and I'm glad that that there are other people out there who get it too. Yeah, and I think also our audience now in in the modern world or. You know, 2019, they're spoiled. I'm going to tell you something, kids. There was a time when comic books and sci-fi was not cool. There was a time that if you went to Comic-Con, you didn't tell anybody. This was a thing you would be embarrassed about. And I think the show did something very smart in the beginning. And I acknowledge the opening scene is of the, the whites and the white walker. But beyond that, the first few seasons were primarily political intrigue, uh, the the machinations of the different families and the power struggle. If you started out with full-blown dragons, the audience would have been fucking noped out right away. So they eased people into it. And today it's cool to be a nerd. You go to Comic-Con, it's something fun. There was a time when nerds hung their head in shame. And I'm glad you brought that up, Big D, because the show and the books are drastically different in that regard. The books started off with magic and the supernatural right off the bat. The show really eased into it. I, that was definitely intentional from a perspective of getting a mainstream audience involved and then slowly, uh, you know, escalating these things. I, I've, I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of the dragons thing. I just think it's kind of like it's secondary to me in the story. Um, but it is a part of the world. You can't deny it. I mean, it's there and it's a, ma it's a major part of what makes this different from most things on HBO. Uh, moving on from the love to the hate. Uh, we've got some some serious hate going on here. And one of them uh, comes from uh, Natalie O. She says, uh, I plan to watch each episode of this final season with a bottle of wine and a box of tissues and weep as I said goodbye to these characters. So it's difficult to express how disappointing it is to almost be feeling nothing at all, which kind of sounds ridiculous since we're talking about a TV show. Talk about a first world problem. As a viewer, I feel disrespected in this final season. Yeah. I feel disrespected as I listen to Weiss and Benioff and the directors make justifications and excuses for the poor decisions that they made. I feel disrespected by ridiculous dialogue and unnecessary plot armor. I feel disrespected because they stopped caring enough to even notice a coffee cup in plain sight or that Jamie's hand regenerated. And I feel disrespected because when offered the time and money to do it right, Weiss and Benioff said, no, thanks. Thanks to letting the pod be a therapy session for us all. Keep up the good work, Natalie O. 
so Natalie, I, w- I want to start off by saying you, you heard the Instacast. I didn't want to record because I was like you. I was hurt. I was bothered. But then the e- reading the emails and, and hearing what people thought and looking at both sides of it, some people think that we're fucking being wishy-washy. And we're just we're we're you know kowtowing because we're afraid or we're doing this like it's our our hot take and trying to stay uh, stay neutral in this fight. That's not the case. I think what we should have done as the week went on, the people who hated it hopefully came down a little bit more towards the center. The people who loved it came more towards the center. Is it ideal is what we wanted? Guess what? If you've been doing something for 10 years and you kind of check out, I can't hold it against you. But what they're putting on screen, you can't question the quality. The writing, yes, it is is dropped off. But man, guess what? You're never going to get this again. So you can either just we can pout, we can scream, we can try to turn the TV off on Sunday, or we can just watch it. Say, you know what, that kind of sucked. I wish it ended different, but it's been a good ride. Yeah, I mean, I've never been married, but I think the show is kind of like a marriage in the sense that you start to notice that your partner's, you know, got a few flaws over the years, but you still love the person. And and I I never want anybody listening to the podcast to think that Big D and I are watching this and going, ah, perfection. <laughs> Like, no, no, there's some seriously bad shit going on screen. You know, people have written in and compared this to like WWE. There are moments where I'm like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. But overall, I I can't say that what's happening right now ruined the last seven seasons. No. Thanks for writing in, Natalie. Next up, we have uh, Richard Clark, uh, who said, oh, another Richard. Look at that. He says, I do think the Double Ds have been navigating their own Kobayashi Maru this season. And with this episode in particular, given how emotionally invested this gigantic fan base is, there was zero path to victory for them. Anything they did would have been met with criticism. Giving us a dramatic death for Cersei? Well, that's too obvious. Give us a Clegane Bowl where the stakes mean saving Arya Stark? Cliché. Have Daenerys accept Cersei's surrender? Boring. That said, there were some unforced errors. As Big D pointed out, Euron being the only survivor of the Iron Fleet and conveniently showing up in time to fight Jaime, oh, come the fuck on with that hack twaddle. And the Clegane Bowl, as portrayed, was fan service and nothing more since there were zero stakes. On the whole, I think this episode is a Ferrari that had its engine swapped out for an ancient two-cylinder. Gorgeous to look at while it sputters and clanks. The Double Ds took an unwinnable situation and shat the bed while they shat on everyone's (laughs) TV. Peace, gentlemen. Richard Clark. So again, I'm going to take kind of a nefarious approach. This let's just say George, right? George has got he's got a mental block. He's got the Kobayashi Maru, and he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. So he boxes in the double D's. He's going to force them to come up with some ideas on how to finish the story. He then watches how they play out on screen, how people take it, and then he adjusts off of that. So maybe he forces the double D's to take these bullets as a way for him to frame out a way to finish the books. Uh, before anyone like uh, is trying to drive and Google at the same time, by the way, the Kobayashi Maru is uh, from Star Trek. It's when you put a, a Starfleet officer in an unwinnable situation. It's a, it's a simulation. And then you see how they react to an unwinnable situation. It gauges their, their character and aptitude. So that's point one. Point two is another dork reference. Uh, I would talk about uh, war games, right? I think what the Double D should have realized is the only way to win a game that's unwinnable is to not play. So what I really would have liked to seen, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but after seeing season eight, what would have been really great is if they left it open-ended. 
if we developed another season of content where we got to the point where um, you know everything was in place, maybe they were about to battle at King's Landing, and that's where it ends. And you got to decide what happens. Oh, I like it more. You just shut down production. You say, hey, George, <laughs> guess what? We're going to wait on you. You know, the book readers obviously didn't put enough pressure on you. We're going to have 50 million people banging on your door telling you to finish the books. Thanks for writing in. Uh, next up, we have one from Megan McCormick. Uh, she says, I found myself disappointed after Sunday's episode, mostly with the character arc changes. First, I don't think they properly sold a John and Danny love story enough to make me feel like him turning her down was the last straw in her sanity. I mean, one boat sex session and a magic carpet ride are nice in a Disney story, but I wanted to feel it more. But I was even more perplexed by the Jamie arc. Why would you make me ride this wave of hating to love him just to make him an ass in the end? I felt in my soul that he was destined to kill Cersei and put a huge exclamation point on his redemption arc. So I sat down Sunday expecting that redemption outcome and was sorely disappointed when that was not the case. And then you knocked the expectation goggles I was wearing during the show off my face with your deep dive character arc discussion. We only wanted to believe Jamie was better. He did some decent things for a while and assimilated with the good, but that wasn't truly who he was. He matured and became incredibly self-aware, but he did not fully redeem himself. And that's okay because that wasn't his story. Wow. Thanks for helping me back to appreciating reality. Best, Megan McCormick. Well, Megan, I'm, I'm glad we could uh, help with that. First of all, I want to say that you brought up something that very few people did, and that's the John and Daenerys love story thing. I don't, I didn't believe it either, and that I think that's what sucked is that the the Cersei Jamie thing, nobody questions that that they're in love, like that's a love story. It might be twisted, it might be damaging to both of them, it might be a fucked up relationship. But I do believe that they, as brother and sister and as lovers, actually do love each other. John and Egret, I bought that. That felt like love to me. John and Daenerys has never really felt true to me. And I think that, you know, when we look back on that dragon ride scene where they go to the waterfall, uh, I think that we all kind of sneered at it and said, well, surely the, the director is trying to make us feel weird about this. And then, I, and then now in hindsight, I'm like, no, no, I think they were really trying to sell that. That was supposed to be romantic and it failed miserably. So I'm glad we can knock the expectation goggles uh, off your eyes in time for the season finale, Meg, and I hope you enjoy it. And speaking of this season finale, lots of people wrote in with predictions for the way they think the story is going to end and what might happen even in the future beyond that. And I want to start off with Aaron of House Tyreman. And Aaron writes in and says, I watched the 45-minute Game of Thrones Conquest and Rebellions DVD that was complimentary with the Season 7 DVD set. It tells the history of the Targaryen line and how they came to Westeros, established Dragonstone, and conquered the Seven Kingdoms. I was surprised to learn that Oris Baratheon came from Essos with Aegon and was suspected to be his bastard half-brother. He became the founder of House Baratheon after he slew the last of the Storm Kings, Argilac, and married his daughter, taking over Storm's End. It was interesting to me that the Baratheon line was given a lordship and essentially legitimized by Aegon Targaryen, only to have Oris's ancestor, Robert Baratheon, become the downfall of the Targaryen line, with Jaime Lannister's help, of course. Wouldn't it be a surprising turn of events if Gendry Baratheon, a newly legitimized lord of Storm's End by Daenerys Targaryen, was ultimately the downfall of the Targaryen line? What if there arises some circumstance in this upcoming episode in which Gendry has to kill Daenerys? History would repeat itself, 
as we have seen time and time again on this show. Even if this doesn't happen, I believe that Gendry's ancestry as a Baratheon and a Targaryen may mean that he will be sitting on the throne at the end of the series, if there is a throne remaining after this next episode, that is. Aaron of House Tyreman, Syracuse, New York. I mean, I think it would make sense. The show's beating us over the head with the fact that uh, people and families continue to make the same mistakes over and over again, that they don't learn from them. So so this would be a, a perfect way to just put the bow tie on just no matter what you do, you're always going to get to the same place. Yeah, and Aaron, now I feel like I got to go get all the DVD sets because there's a ton of content I'm missing. So thanks for making us aware of that. Uh, I will stop streaming immediately. Uh, next up, we have one from Juan from New York who writes in, I think Braun will end up killing Daenerys just when she is about to kill Tyrion. Now, Big D, when I first read this one, I thought it was nuts, but the rationale is not bad. It says in season seven, episode four, Braun tells Jamie he wanted a castle and specifically Highgarden. In season seven, episode seven, Jorah tells Daenerys she should go to Winterfell by boat as it only takes one angry man with a crossbow to kill her. In season eight, we have two strange appearances by Braun that don't make any sense. In one, he gets a crossbow to kill someone. And in two, he agrees with Tyrion to get Highgarden. We know Braun is only loyal to get his reward. And without Tyrion and Cersei, he gets nothing. So his only option is to have Tyrion in power. And if Daenerys gets that away from him, then he will need to kill her. Thoughts? See, here's the trouble with that, is that if Braun comes to Daenerys, who could actually make this happen, and says, I was promised by Tyrion, she could easily look at him and be like, guess what, you're making deals behind my back? Guess what, you fucked up a last time, I'm going to kill you. So it's almost she has to remove Daenerys if he has any hope of getting that castle. Well, I think that's what Juan's saying is, there's a situation where, okay, so we just saw Tyrion free Jamie, right? So Jamie is... Uh, uh, he gets free. He dies. Daenerys finds out about it, right? She says, I warned you, if you ever cross me again, blah, 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 I'm going to have to kill you, right? So in the climax of episode six, we get Daenerys. She's got Drogon sitting over Tyrion, about to roast him. And out of nowhere, Bronn pops up and puts a bolt right in her chest. See, no, I, I understand that. But I'm thinking the other way is that Bronn now has something that he can extort Tyrion with. Hey, make it happen. Make it happen. Tyrion then goes to Daenerys and says, hey, I have an idea. We have to give these castles away. We have to populate them again. Braun has been loyal. Braun has worked with us. Let's give it to him. And guess what, Tyrion? If you don't do that, I'm going to tell her that you went behind her back. So it doesn't have to be that he's going to, you know, pull like a Robin Hood and swing out of the tree and shoot the barrels full of dynamite, you know, to save the merry men. It could go either way. But Braun, if nothing happens with Braun, why did we waste that five minutes sitting having that conversation with the crossbow to waste the screen time? Probably so I would go, all right, it's Braun. Yay. All right. Thanks for writing in. Next up, we have one from Corey C who says, hey, guys, first off, love the podcast. I hate that I didn't find it until season eight. Well, Corey, we didn't start until season seven, so you didn't miss much. Uh, I haven't heard anything from anyone about Lord Varys writing the scrolls that we have seen him writing. Is it possible that he could have been sending out ravens to the other seven kingdoms to let them know the truth about John? There has to be someone to help. Thanks for the podcast, Corey C. Right. So we know that the world and then the, the powerful houses have been diminished. So I wrote Eugene and I said, who could he be writing to that could actually make a difference? The only options I could come up with was maybe the Citadel, the Dornish, or the Iron Bank. 
You know, they have the power to buy a force that could confront Daenerys if she's not the rightful heir, if they're afraid of losing their money. But can you come up with anybody else who he could be writing to that actually could do anything? Yes, and I think it comes from another listener, John Lish, uh, who wrote in about the War of the Roses. And what he does is he says that he sees a lot of parallels between the War of the Roses, uh, which was like what resulted in Elizabeth the first uh, being in power. Uh, skipping forward to the the relevant part, he says uh, we haven't had the Grand Northern Conspiracy in the TV show, which is about regaining independence of the North. We've had declarations of independence, which parallel Welsh independence movements, which were defeated. And so he thinks maybe that's a Rob Stark parallel. And we know that Henry Tudor used those Welsh traditions to build his army. This is where I think the positioning of Sansa as a competent ruler of Winterfell and the smartest person in the room looks suspicious if it only ends up with her running Winterfell. So Sansa wants the North, and she kind of made that clear in her chat with Daenerys. And who else of the Starks wants the job? Jon, he doesn't want to rule. Bran, he's too spaced out. Arya, that's not her. As we all know, revolutions have a life of their own. Why shouldn't ambitions for the North become wider? As Littlefinger said, chaos is a ladder, and Dave and Dan are calling Sansa the new Littlefinger. So if Daenerys does perform the Mad Targaryen act that was heavily foreshadowed, cue eerie music and Varys staring intently, which did happen, then how can the great houses of Westeros support more Targaryens on the throne? Cue Sansa riding down with the Knights of the Riverlands, thanks to Uncle Edmure. The Veil forces also switching to support her. As the adult in the room, she takes control of the Seven Kingdoms through being sensible rather than through bloodshed. That could be a bittersweet ending. That neither of the prophecy characters, John or Daenerys, ascend the throne, but instead a monarch more appropriate of reforming Westeros does. That would also allow a role for Tyrion as a Thomas Cromwell fixer to help build that statecraft. Best wishes to you all, John Lish. Only problem with this is that Sansa is the one who told Varys. Varys wouldn't be writing it back to Sansa. You assume that Sansa would have told uh, the other northern houses. She would have told them herself. So Varys writing it, hey, you know, this was the rightful heir. This is Aegon Targaryen, Ned Stark. He wouldn't be writing that. No, but it would be a second source, right? So so Sansa is out okay. there gaining the, the support of the West, mm-hmm. and Varys is writing it now from a separate camp. This is Varys. This is an advisor to the queen, and he has written it out to all the other lands, all the other kingdoms. And so she now has a coalition, right? Now, the question would be, what good is a coalition uh, when you've got a dragon on your side, you know, they don't have scorpions that are rolling in or whatever. So how would they do it? And the only way they, I think they could do it is by the popular opinion, right? Sort of a thing like uh, like the faith militant, right? It would have to be that if all the people chose not to comply, then Daenerys would have to realize that she has no one to rule. Yeah, so Varys is the the verification. He's the second source of the information. Or the verification, if you will. Mm. Yes. Thanks for writing in, uh, Corey and John. Uh, Next up, we have one from Michael Hartley, who says, Hey, guys, is Game of Thrones going to end as it began? I think I'm right in thinking that Game of Thrones started something like this. Targaryen ruler getting stabbed in the back by Lannister, Baratheon sitting on the throne and being romantically rejected by a Stark. Could history be about to repeat itself? And is this just going to end up as a loop of the past rather than the nice ending of nice rightful ruler like Jon Snow on the throne and everyone living happily ever after? A repeat of history seems more likely to me. And that comes from Michael. 
And Michael, you reminded me of that painting that was going around as a meme before the season started. And just, we were so naive. <laughs> like five weeks ago, we were so naive where you saw it was like a John and Daenerys sitting on two thrones next to each other and Tyrion off to the side. And then they had all these baby wolves and like dragons. And it was like all just like a happy family up in the throne room. And I remember thinking, God, that would be the dumbest ending. And now I'm like, that would have been a great ending. <laughs> Thanks for writing in. Uh, next up, we have one from the mother of cats. And it's not Carrie Gross. And she writes in, uh, greetings from London. I actually like this episode. Nothing went the way that we expected it to. And the unpredictable Game of Thrones was back. I can't believe that we only have one episode left as it feels like there's a lot to cover before the story is done. I was left with these questions. Will Daenerys go after Sansa? Did Varys manage to send out any of those letters? And who did he send them to? Where is Yara? Will Arya kill Daenerys? Those are the questions from Mother of Cats. So let's start off with, will Daenerys go after Sansa? Mm, I don't think so, but I think Sansa will go after Daenerys. I agree. Um, will Arya kill Daenerys? And I've been thinking about this lately. And you know what? She's a great assassin. You can... I could see her doing it, but there's a problem. The Unsullied and the Dothraki and Drogon, they're not the Lannister soldiers. They're not going to put their swords down, right? If you kill Daenerys, they're not going to just say, oh, okay, who's the next ruler? They're from Essos. They don't play that game. They're not going to switch allegiances. So if you do kill her, all the Starks are dead. The North is dead. They're going to rain fire. You have to find a way to kill Daenerys that it doesn't incite the Unsullied, the Dothraki, and Drogon to then just lay waste, you know, 2.0. I also don't think that Arya is going to pull some trick like uh, using somebody else's face or jumping out of the shadows again. I think in a story like this, you get like one big kill. Like we saw her jump out and kill the Night King. She got him. Uh, we've seen her use the face like with Walder Frey. I don't think that they're going to repeat that trick again because I can see the fan base right now exploding into that feels like a recycle, a rehash. They don't have any original ideas left. And the only counterpoint I see to that is we did see Arya witness the destruction caused by Daenerys, and that definitely seemed to charge her hatred of Daenerys. So I think that Arya may make an attempt, but I do not think that she will be the one who kills Daenerys if anyone does. So Mother of Cats said, nothing went the way we expected it. It's unpredictable. So I'm going to come up with the most unpredictable ending that I think might make the internet meltdown. Next episode, Daenerys goes 180 degrees back to the breaker of the wheel. She becomes benevolent. The people of King's Landing love her. They spend the next episode rebuilding King's Landing. Everyone's in peace. And we see like the city go progressively time-lapse. As it grows larger, prosperous, everyone's happy. That would subvert my expectation. And you see Drogon like picking up blocks of the wall and putting them back, you know, mm -hmm. and like winking. Oh, no, no. Drogon would be flying around with little dragons, like a family. Oh, that's nice. You know, and everyone would look up and instead of it fear, they'd be like, hey, Drogon. A boat, a boat pulls into port and it's ghost with a little captain's hat and like a pipe. And he's, you know, he's humming a tune. Everything's great. Yeah. Fuck, I want to watch this. I want to watch this episode. And Tormund's there with like five or six of those horns with, with the, the milk in them. You know, it's like they're having a picnic. It would be so happy. Yeah. Uh, that'd be great. 
I hope it happens. Yeah. Also, Yara just went back to the Iron Islands. <laughs> She's like, fuck this. <laughs> She's fucked this. I'm out. I'm fucking out, you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Mother of Cats. And finally, oh, man. <laughs> Some serious fucking tinfoil. All right. This one comes from Danielle Givens. And Big D, you selected this one. I was like, no. <laughs> yes. And then like an hour later, I was like, fuck no. And then an hour after that, I was like, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Danielle writes <laughs> And my notes literally say, what the fuck? In all caps, all caps. Yeah, yeah. Danielle says, greetings from Las Vegas. (laughs) I'd like to preface this by stating that I, unfortunately, do not think this would ever come to fruition. However, I think it would change the rules of television. Imagine at the end of episode six, that ends on what seems like an unbelievable cliffhanger. We get several seconds of black. And then we see next on game of thrones and they've pulled the biggest twist no one ever thought to look for in my fantasy they return to the 10 episode season and give us a treat knowing that we would eat up whatever they gave us because it was a gift we weren't even prepared for i don't think this revolutionary reveal would excuse the rushed feeling of this season but that's not what the show would be remembered for in the years to come it would cement itself in history for probably breaking the internet I know it's too huge a secret to actually keep under wraps with the production of this size, but it was a fun thought to explore. Thank you for attending my tangent talk, Danielle G. When Danielle said she was from Vegas, I I could understand where this theory came from. I picture it's a late night bender. You know, she's been up all night. She's been playing the slots. Lots of cocaine. Uh, Oh, lots of cocaine. Lots of cocaine. I mean, I, I couldn't have even thought of this. I don't. It's granted it could never happen. They can't keep a secret, but people would lose their mind. It would be glory. You'd hear at college. Did you have to, you know, when they used to do finals, it was like at midnight, everybody would go out in their like patio or whatever and scream. If this shit happened, you would hear it across America. Everyone would scream in unison like, fuck yes, but it won't happen. We'd also have to completely reschedule all the things that we put off for like eight weeks now <laughs> be like oh i guess i guess i'm not taking a shower for another three weeks yeah like my marriage uh, honey i won't see you for another three four weeks sorry uh mom cancel my birthday it's not happening uh thanks danielle that, that would be great uh next up we have a ton of them actually this week we really fucked this week up uh and we'll start off with uh daniel beeson and Daniel Beeson writes, hey, guys, on your last episode, Big D stated that Arya killed the most feared character in the books, the Night King. Um, actually, there is no Night King in the books. Definitely one of the best additions to the show. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Daniel Beeson. Ah, uh, yes, you are correct. There was a different character called the Night's King. He was the 13th Lord Commander, I believe, who fell in love with uh, a, a blue, probably like a female White Walker. But you're correct. He's not in the book. Sometimes I just get carried away. And I've made that mistake between the books and the TV show. And I've actually read the books. And it's still, uh, you know, they do such a seamless job of, of mixing the two things that it is hard to remember. You know, like there were White Walkers in the book. So I'm like, wait, there's Night King too? So anyway, thanks for pointing that out, Daniel. Uh, next up, we have one from Lauren in California. Uh, this one's for me. It says, uh, hey, Gene. I don't think Varys could have taken the black. Um, actually, their watch has ended. <laughs> I fucking totally forgot about the wall falling, Lauren. <laughs> I apologize. Minor plot point. Maybe I'm like Marielle and just forgot to watch uh, the season finale of season seven. So good point. 
uh, I don't think anybody's up on the wall right now. All right, next up we have another one for me. It comes from K-Rod from Chicago. It says, uh, hey guys, love the show. Been listening since season one of Westworld. I have an um actually for Gene. Um, actually, Sir Davos is actually from King's Landing. He grew up in Flea Bottom, and he is the number one smuggler. He would definitely have the best knowledge out of everyone. Thanks for all you do, K-Rod from Chicago. So this is in reference to me on the deep dive saying that certain people who had knowledge of King's Landing were able to move about easily, like Arya, Jamie, and the Hound, and other people were bewildered and lost, like Jon Snow, Grey Worm, and Sir Davos. It, and you're absolutely right. But it leads me to another question is, what the fuck is Sir Davos even doing there? Like, why is he, why does he have a sword in his hand going through the streets of King's Landing? He's a smuggler. He's self-admitted not a great swordsman. Why the hell is he leading the charge on King's Landing? It'd be like, hey, Sir Davos, uh, maybe just get a boat and go somewhere. Also, can you imagine trying to hold a sword missing the, fr- the the tips of all your fingers? It's his offhand. You sure it's not both hands? No, it's just his offhand. It's one hand. He carries them in a little pouch around his neck. <laughs> oh, no. I'm serious. Okay, I, I believe you. He really does. And he's he's appreciative of Stannis for doing it to him. I know a lot about Sir Davos. Just don't know where the fuck he came from. So thanks for writing in, K-Rod. Next up, we have Calvin Zavinsky, who writes in, Hey guys, Calvin from Michigan here. I just wanted to touch base on something Big D mentioned about how it might have seemed silly that the dragon fire was destroying everything so easily. Remember in season two, episode four, when Arya, Gendry, and Hot Pie are at Harrenhal? I believe it's Hot Pie who asks what kind of fire could have melted the castle, to which Arya responds, dragon fire. Calvin, I know you wrote this one for Big D, but I've got a few things to say about it. Hall's stone melted from a mature dragon. Uh, so that was uh, when Aegon uh, swooped down on Hall. It didn't get chopped the fucking half from a young dragon at 200 yards. So I think what Big D was asking is not how did the fire melt stone? We clearly saw it blast through entire towers and send them tumbling. I can understand melting stone, but if anybody's seen Dune... Do you remember the, the the weirding modules that they use? Achoo! Yeah, yeah, and it blows stuff up. That it was the shock wave. It was that it was it was shooting stone great distance. It wasn't melting. It was more just uh, like a shock wave, like a sonic weapon. I know that dragons are mystical and magical creatures, and so we don't really know exactly how they work. I mentioned before on the podcast that in Dungeons and Dragons, you have to do a charge roll. And depending on the maturity and the color of the dragon, you'd roll the dice and you would see uh, like a higher roll, like a four or five or six, he would get his fire back for the next round, a one, two or three, he didn't have it available perhaps. But what we're seeing here with these dragons, it seems like they do have infinite fire. One Redditor tried to explain why that would cause explosions in the stone. Assuming that dragon fire is hot enough, when you spill hot liquid metal on stone, and particularly concrete and porous stone, the water trapped within the stone's matrix can flash over immediately to steam and cause it to explode. And that sprays stone and sends shrapnel everywhere. Uh, And they say if you have a welding or a brazing torch, you could do this, or even a big enough Fresnel lens, if you're the kind of nerd that builds a Fresnel lens. So now do you understand why the internet's melting down? Do you think there's any chance of making that dude happy? And next, we have one from Tierra, who's writing in about Masunday. And she says, hey, guys, and then quotes us as saying, there hasn't been an outcry about people missing her. And we're surprised that more people didn't take note of it about Masunday crying out Dracaris. I heard these sentiments uttered on this podcast, 
and a screeching um actually rang around my bathroom as I washed my hair and literally poked my head out of the shower to stare at my Bluetooth speaker incredulously. There has been a huge outcry about my Sunday's death from the black and brown watchers of the show. You guys may never have to think about this because most great shows feature people who look like you, but the brown and black fans have been tracking every non-white or white passing character in the show since season one. And our precious Sunday was everything and pretty much the only positive representation we had on the show. We had the Dothraki who are literally portrayed like some racist man's nightmares about Native Americans as they prance on the screen, hollering and fucking and slicing the neck of the man standing next to them. They raid and rape and are only seen as valuable when they're used as a weapon. Otherwise, they're simply regarded as savages. Pretty sure the show even uses that word. But almost every other brown person is literally a fucking slave with the exception of the slave masters of Yonkai, who were brown and then the Dornish. And certainly every black person we've seen on the show has been a slave, the Unsullied, with the exception of three characters, Zerazon Daxos, Sir Davos's black pirate friend, whose name I don't know, and the man from Marine whom Danny was engaged to for half a second, Hisdar. Yet through all the shitty and triggering portrayals of slavery, savagery, and severed dicks, we got our queen, Masunde. Gentle and smart with a crown full of curls, and we loved her. So this is just an um actually regarding our black outcry. We miss her, we love her, and honestly, we're mostly shocked that she got to live this long and pissed that she didn't get to live out her dream with her love. I won't be surprised if Grey Worm goes next. Love the podcast, and I look forward to your witty and defensive response. Ooh, defensive response. I want to hear, but it's not like The Walking Dead. If any of you have ever watched The Walking Dead, the second that we got some backstory on, on any character of color, T-Dog, I'm looking at you, they were dead the next episode. I don't think Game of Thrones is that bad, but uh, I'm a white guy. One of the great things about doing this podcast with you, Big D, for these years is if you go back and listen to our early stuff versus now, we've become a lot more intelligent about the way we speak about things. And so things like this remind me that I should be more clear on the podcast. Mm. I, I'm not offended by it by any means. And I'm not trying to be defensive. So Tiara, what I meant to say is that I was surprised that more people didn't write into us about this topic because we, we'll, we'll read through all the emails and I start to kind of file them into categories. And so people were writing in about all sorts of stuff and the, the Sunday death scene just seemed to be overlooked with the exception of Colodon who wrote in and a handful of other people. I was shocked by this because I thought that she was an important character. Again, yes, she was one of the few positive representations of color. And I'm going to blow your mind here. Uh, I'm not white. What? I know. I know. Are you Sorry, sure? Sorry, Big D. Surprise. Yeah. Oh, come on. So, Tiara, I've said this before on our other podcast, uh, Shat the Movies. I have never seen a hero in any TV show or movie who looks like me, who is uh, of my people. And um, right now, especially in a situation where the U.S. is uh, is poised to possibly go to war with Iran um, as an Iranian-American, I've never in my lifetime had to experience any sort of direct prejudice regarding my race. I mean, yeah, there's some weird stuff that comes up every now and then about people asking about like, so in, in your country, do they have toilets or pizza? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, well, I grew up in America, so I don't know. Point being, the closest I ever got was when I was watching Lost and they had the character Syed and I was like, Oh wow. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And he's he, and he's not even Persian, but it was like close enough. Like I'll take it, you know. So Tiara, I completely understand. Um and I actually even tweeted after uh the Battle of Winterfell, is it just me 
Or did all the brown characters just die without getting like uh, death scenes when everybody else did? You know, even when the Dothraki ride off and disappear, who comes riding back? It's just Jorah. Like everybody else, we don't give a fuck. <laughs> Jorah comes back and gets it. So I wrote about that. And some people said, yeah, Gene, you're absolutely right. This is a thing. And other people were like, no, you're crazy. And so I didn't bring it up on the podcast because I didn't want to seem like I was hypersensitive and had an agenda. But Tierra, you're absolutely right. Uh, this this was a big deal, and I'm so glad you wrote in about it. I, I just can't go to the fact you're not a white dude. Well, according to the U.S. government, <laughs> Iranians I'm, are Caucasian. I'm, so, I'm but uh, but I definitely don't look white. No, you're like you're like a khaki. You're like a cappuccino. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sounds. <laughs> I, I feel delicious now. Anyway, thanks for writing in. Next up, we had a lot of people complaining about Cersei Lannister's death. One of our listeners, Steve V, wrote in with a different viewpoint. And Steve says, hey, guys, I give thanks to the writers for once again giving the audience not what they think they want, but what will ultimately be better appreciated. Cersei has been a character we love to hate. Over the eight seasons, the number of people with just cause to end her life is innumerable. This is exactly why no one character could truly satisfy us due to the unique revenge that would have been exacted by any particular character. Sure, it would have been momentarily cool to see Cersei engulfed in Drogon's fire, or to have Kyburn slit her throat only to be revealed as Arya, or a dozen other ways. However, she would have died as she lived, hated by the audience, and then just another dead body on the growing pile. Instead, we see the new Mad Queen crushing Cersei's dreams of victory by destroying a city of a million people. Queen Cersei is defeated, and we are left with Cersei the Mother, weeping, her last desperate pleas to save her unborn child silenced as she and the only man she's truly loved fall victim to the rage of a new tyrant with only the audience's witness. In these moments, our hatred for Cersei is transferred to Daenerys and Cersei dies a tragic figure. That the show could humanize and engender sympathy for Cersei Lannister was for me a masterful moment that no amount of blood or fire could have equaled. As always, thanks for your love and devotion to the shows and your fans, Steve V. So I started thinking after I read this, uh, what kind of bloodlust would have actually made us happy? And immediately something popped into my mind. Braveheart, strangely. At the very end, when they've got William Wallace and they're going to execute him and they cut him open, they're pulling out his intestines, the crowd had started off like, yeah, woo, kill him, yeah. And as he's staying there stoically and he eventually you know, yells out freedom, the crowd is screaming mercy, mercy, mercy. They thought they wanted to see it, but they didn't. If you brutalize Cersei and just had some horrific death, we all would have been like, oh, I didn't need that. So we think we wanted it. But if you put it on screen, I don't think it would have been as fulfilling. Her dying tortured, knowing the only thing she cares about the child in her stomach is hopelessly lost. I think that was enough torture for me upon second thought. And Steve, you mentioned that phrase with only the audience's witness. I didn't think about that when I saw it. And I, I really liked the scene, but that adds an additional layer to it where nobody knows in the entire kingdom. Nobody knows what happened to Cersei. She dies an unknown. She dies. They may never find that body. So thanks for writing in, Steve. Uh, next up, we have one from John F., who writes in, Ned and Catelyn Stark single-handedly both saved and destroyed the entire Seven Kingdoms. I won't go over the obvious but consequential role of Ned and Catelyn starting the War of the Five Kings, but Catelyn's decision to not love John, 
heart-wrenching now as we look at how good John is as a person, driving him to serve at the wall, which had the butterfly effect of the total destruction of the dead. Ned's decision to be honorable and not heed Robert's call to kill Daenerys proved to be the total destruction of the most populated city and capital of the world. Ned's decision to give mercy to Cersei proved fatal to tens of thousands who died at the Sept of Baelor, Highgarden, and others. The only thing keeping Ned and Catelyn from destroying the entire Seven Kingdoms is Ned being the only one in, again, the entire Seven Kingdoms who can keep a secret. By total luck, preserving Jon to where he can possibly reverse every horrible decision they made. In addition, Ned's ability to nurture his daughters in their skill sets also is proving unique to reversing the effects of living honorably in a society that rewards the opposite. In retrospect, King Robert was the smartest person on the show with his staunch decision to kill every Targaryen, because when you leave just one on the board, they have the ability to level entire civilizations. Let's hope the installation of honor from a guy who used honor to almost destroy a kingdom can save the Seven Kingdoms. That comes from John Funderburk. So Ned, much like John, doesn't seem to have a, a great perception of what's going on around him. When and I, I rewatched it the other day, the the scene in in season one where uh, Ned has completed his his uh, investigation, he finds out about Gendry, and does he decide to wait for Robert to come home from the boar hunting expedition to tell him? Guess what? Joffrey is not your child. It's Jamie and Cersei's. He says, I'm going to give her a head start. He says, you better get your kids, take as many men as you can, and get out of the city. Because Robert, he's going to track you down. If you're telling someone, hey, guess what? I'm going to out you. I'm going to get you killed. You don't warn them ahead of time. If Ned had just waited till Robert came back, he would have seen he was injured. He might have played it differently. But yeah, this is Ned's fault. Everything. Uh, Big D, if you read the books, you would be losing your mind because there's like chapters of Ned. Like it's like they're going on like a Disney cruise. He's like, okay, everybody, get your trunks together. Okay, we're going to send a couple guys on this boat. And then Arya, Sansa, get your things. Sansa, stop playing with Joffrey. Okay, come on. Like, let's get everybody in the car. Like, let's go, everybody. And you're just like, get the fuck, get out of there. Like, I can see everything happening, Ned. How do you not know what's going on? So it's it's maddening. They did a great job at on the show, but the book is even more frustrating. So I know that the books are written from the character's perspective. Littlefinger must have, I want to hear his chapters. He must have been like, oh my God, this dude's a fucking idiot. What is he doing? That what who is this guy? Oh my oh, he just must have laughed. It must have been chapters of just him looking at Ned stumble around and make mistakes and just Littlefinger internally laughing his monologue. <laughs> no, Littlefinger, all he does in the book is basically walk around dropping hints to everybody that he banged Cat Stark when they were younger. So by the way, as the master of coin, I noticed that uh, the revenues coming in from this tax season are doing really well, King Robert. Also, I might have banged Cat Stark. Thanks, John, for writing in. Uh, next up, we have one from uh, Mariel who writes in, let's talk about that pale horse Arya rides off with. I'm going to get biblical, so bear with me. Book of Revelations 6-8, King James Version. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Furthermore, in A Dance with Dragons... 
Kate warns Danny that a pale mare is coming for her amongst the other prophecies. Could both of these clues suggest that Arya will kill Daenerys? Don't forget, Daenerys has green eyes too. Great email, Mariel. There seems to be three theories about what's going on with the horse thing. So one of them matches exactly what you're saying. The pale horse brings death. It's a symbol that Arya will be the death that is delivered uh, to Daenerys. Um, Another theory, which I don't buy into at all, is the Bran's Uber theory, which is (laughs) saying that Bran has warped into the horse and is carrying Arya out of the city. That's Okay, fine. There's also somebody who said that it might be Jake and Hagar, who has taken the face of a horse and now appeared as a horse. Whatever. But there's another one that's really interesting. And people have pointed out that the horse being used looks a lot like, if not, the horse that was being ridden by the commander of the Golden Company. And what's interesting about that is we saw that horse get knocked down uh, by dragon fire in the explosion of the gates and presumably killed. In the, in the onslaught of the army running back over it. So some people think that this is Arya dead, that Arya has, is being carried off into the afterlife or whatever by this horse. And the, the reason they, they leave for that is actually what a lot of people complain about in this episode is Arya is like hunkered down and flames hit everything around her and everybody scorched. And yeah, she goes around a corner, but that was a lot of dragon fire. And so people think that we haven't realized yet that Arya has passed on into uh, the afterlife and this horse is carrying her off because that's the only time we see her after the fire is is when she's united with this horse. And it does have a very surreal feel to it. I think it was just beautifully shot. Um, I don't think that she is dead, but I do like this idea that they're signaling to us a lot like Westworld did that they pull from biblical references uh, to give us some cues as to what a character's next movement will be. Yeah, this would be a weird version of The Sixth Sense where Arya thinks she's sneaking up on Daenerys to stab her and then you know, Needle just goes through her and she realizes that she's a ghost. People, we got 80 minutes left. You really think they're going to introduce an afterlife and Arya riding a horse off and she's been dead this whole time? Um, I'm sorry, it's, it's not going to happen. Thanks, Mariel, for writing in. Next up, we have Christina from Ohio. Christina says, uh, a listener wrote in expressing dissent of Sansa's lack of regret toward the things that happened to her. They said that they felt it was disingenuous to survivors of sexual assault. Let me first say that to some survivors, it would feel that way, but it depends on how a particular person reacts to assault. As a survivor myself, I have to tell you that what Sansa said was the first time I have seen my words and feelings expressed on screen. It was, for me, the most powerful moment on the entire show because I have said those words, at least something very close. I was asked once, if you could go back and have your sexual assault never happen, would you? And I was surprised by my own gut feeling and response. The truth, for me, is that I would not change it. That experience is part of who I am today. It shaped me in ways nothing else has. It taught me the absolute depths of my mental strength and stability. I'm a stronger person today because of that experience, and I know it to my core. Did I want it to happen? No. Am I happy it happened? No. But it did happen, and I can't change it. What ifs and could haves mean nothing in this life, and that was Sansa's eloquently put point. She knows who she is. She knows who she would have been if her abuses had never occurred, and she understands and appreciates the differences between the two. She has fully accepted what happened to her and released it. 
She has chosen to find something positive in it, and her words were some of the most empowering ever written on the show. As always, great show, guys. I love it. That's Christina from Ohio. So, Christina, I want, I want to thank you. Uh, the fact that you feel comfortable enough to write in and share something as traumatic and something that's so close to you and has affected you, it gives us a different perspective, and we're thankful to have you along with us for the ride. And, Christina, I would be remiss if I didn't take you a little bit behind the scenes on this one, too. So the listener who wrote in was Chaco, who is a guy. I also raised this issue with Big D immediately after the episode. I was like, I felt I felt that this was a line written by a guy uh, that does not understand what uh, sexual assault is like, uh, that tries to put a positive spin on things, and no real woman would say that. It just goes to show that two guys, Chago and I, having no idea of what it's like to be a woman and a sexual assault survivor, we're talking out of their asses. And so I'm glad that you wrote this in and said, hey, listen, there is a different perspective of this. It depends, as you said, on how a particular person reacts to assault. So it is not to say that a sexual assault is okay because it makes people better in the end. No. But if that's your experience, I think that's wonderful. And I'm echoing what Big D said. I'm, I'm so glad that you feel comfortable enough to write into us about it. And thanks so much for listening and for giving us uh, forgiveness in these moments. I've spent my entire life trying to learn from those around me. And being able to, to get these emails from listeners, it keeps your mind open. It says, you know what? Just because I live this life, this is what I experience. That's not the case for everybody out there. And it, uh, it kind of teaches us, don't ever assume that something on screen or something other people are going through meets your specific expectations of how someone should react. And finally, we have a repeat writer. This is uh, the fighter pilot that wrote in after episode three. Guys, this is a really long one. I've tried to trim it down, but there's a certain flow and a cadence to it. So we hope you'll bear with us because it is really, really worth listening to. Uh, and this comes from Fatso. He says, uh, Hi, gents. Since you're the first venue to publish something I've authored, I figure I'd share a more comprehensive view of episode five, since the episode three review I wrote was brief and not intended for public consumption. Hope you enjoy. Disclaimer, the following are views solely of the author and not the official stance of the United States Air Force or the government. I think I have to say that. The conquest and massacre at King's Landing, a fighter pilot's perspective. In episode five, friendly forces are on the offensive, taking the fight to King's Landing. Finally, we wouldn't want more than one episode resting on our laurels. Leading up to the fight in episode four, all the senior advisors among Team Targaryen Stark, yes, I hyphenated, I'm not sorry, appeared to be in agreement that reconstitution and logistical considerations must be given their due attention. As the senior decision maker and episode three close air support MVP, Danny wasn't having any of this wait around business and unilaterally decided to bring the hate to Cersei, Ricky Tick. As the commander, this is clearly her call. And why not? Because we have one dragon remaining. Why bother with story development at this point anyway? Am I right? Unfortunately, this was all complicated by John's unsophisticated view of ethics at the strategic leadership level. John is generally a binary thinker, very black and white, not realizing that real strategic leadership occasionally requires senior leaders to make ethically questionable or less than palatable calls to serve a higher moral purpose, to shape a more desirable operating environment, or influence a more positive end state. Now realize that I'm not suggesting he outright lie, but perhaps it could be less forthcoming with a highly inflammatory, blistering truth in the most tumultuous and volatile of times. Hashtag your timing blows, bruh. 
Had he listened to his queen's command, not request, and not told his sisters the truth regarding his identity, it is likely that senior leadership cohesion would be stronger. Varys would not be dead, an elimination of tremendous intelligence source. It's like firing the CIA and the NSA all at once. And thus, the entire slaughter may have been prevented altogether. By embracing a post-conventional view of ethics and awaiting a more appropriate and less volatile time to break the news, like after Cersei was resting comfortably in an ashtray or dustpan, may have appeared to be moderately deceptive of John, but it would have been less likely that Danny would have gone full Dresden on the inhabitants of King's Landing. Never go full Dresden. Jon Snow definitely knows nothing about effective campaign planning at the operational level, and he knows nothing about post-conventional ethical considerations at a strategic level. Dude swings a mean sword in the trenches, though. John, I award you infantry squad leader status, an intensely valuable job, more fit for your talents. Not exactly senior leadership material, I'm afraid, and that's okay. Next, in the moments leading up to the attack, the call a knock it off when the bells ring message was proliferated widely through senior leadership, yet was acknowledged by pretty much no one. This message from Tyrion was received by blank stares. Hashtag warning signs. Hashtag warning signs everywhere. And what the hell is up with friendly force tracking? Arya and the Hound bail. Huh? Not even a mention from John or Danny. You'd think that your Delta operator that killed the freaking Night King, the baddest dude in Westeros, you know, the guy that killed a dragon with a javelin. Yeah, she killed him. Might be useful in a large offensive, especially one happening like, you know, soon. Yet she hops on a horse to ride with a maniac on a self-assigned suicide mission. Bruh, get it together. Clearly, while not eating and sleeping... Daenerys constituted a fairly comprehensive plan to peel back the anti-access area denial, A2AD situation, in around King's Landing. The Scorpion had proven its effectiveness against an unaware, non-maneuvering air breather, aided by the element of surprise, resulting in the loss of a high-value airborne asset, HVAA, in E4. This clearly gave Danny healthy respect for and familiarity with surface-to-air fires, but it also made enemy forces overconfident in their new system, which was proliferated widely throughout the realm. Their overconfidence was demonstrated by your observation that scorpions were conspicuously absent from the Red Keep. A real A2AD system would be highly integrated and, get this, guided. The scorpion is not guided. It's aimed anti-aircraft artillery, pronounced AAA much less effective against maneuvering targets and can be overflown with sufficient altitude. As demonstrated in episode five, the use of unpredictable maneuvering, erratic altitude changes, and varying her attack axis kept Danny and her dragon inside enemy AAA operator OODA loops, hashtag Boyd. They were unable to complete a full engagement cycle to high PK, probability of kill shots. Only a few shots were close, yet easily defeated by an aware and experienced fighter jock. Hashtag scoff the scorpion. Additionally, Danny effectively used environmental ad- advantages and attack azimuth selections that increased her lethality and survivability. I really dig the surprise attack against the golden losers. I did not see that coming. Her aggression and lack of apprehension were traits I appreciate as an operator myself, and her adaptability led to the rest of the momentarily living, seeing firsthand what air power can do if wielded by proficient hands, making quick decisions, unconstrained by rules of engagement, and later, a modern sense of morality. Additionally, she clearly cut the full destructive power of her asset loose, nearly doubling previously observed yields. Nice. A real masterpiece of destruction. 
While planning, Danny had obviously concluded that air power must be applied aggressively against enemy AAA sites, naval assets, defensive fortifications, and massed troops. Soft crunchies. This is a good plan to ensure a more permissive operating environment for air and ground forces. What she failed to recognize, however, is the JP-50 joint planning concept of centers of gravity, COGs. While aforementioned targets Danny dispatched prior to the bells ringing are juicy targets and are operationally sound COGs, good strategic planning would have listed Cersei as the juiciest of all COGs, the ace of spades, as it were, and thus should be killed or captured at the earliest opportunity, like the very moment air superiority is established. Thus, the time spent perched at the rooftop crying and contemplating her next aerial firepower demonstration would have been better spent breathing fire into Cersei's window. Boom. War's over. Where's the throne? Here? Great. Oh, oh man. I thought it'd be more comfortable. Oh, well. Tyrion, have cushions made. Bring me wine. Hi, Jamie. You don't look well. Need a Band-Aid? Alas, JP-50 wasn't around, and formal military education had not been developed or instituted in our ragtag coalition. And Danny likely had never felt more alone than John's obviously unstrategic and arguably disloyal verbal indiscretion perched on her most loyal of allies, Drogon, surveying the destructive masterpiece in what's likely the swiftest route of a heavily fortified city in Westerosian history. She had not learned the lessons of the firebombing of Tokyo and Dresden, the lack of military value and counterproductive nature of targeting civilian centers learned from World War II, and the perils of giving into emotional, social, or psychological pressures as seen in the My Lai Massacre. While a family heritage, there was no institutional guidance or tactics, techniques, or procedures, TTPs, on the proper application of air power, and her sole constraint was her relationships with the senior leadership of her coalition, most important of which was John, obviously. Minimal training, no institutional memory, no constraints, and nearly unlimited power sounds like a recipe for a massacre in any campaign. John should have seen this coming. Hell, she told him it was coming. Yet somehow, he still seemed surprised when Daenerys pushed the fuck it button and began her air power demo against the civilian populace. I guess the Red Keep will have more sword furniture to match the Iron Throne if they ever dig it up. In the end, I really enjoyed the episode, and as a career fighter pilot, I found Danny's coming out moment as the premier air dominance power in Westeros particularly gratifying, albeit morally abhorrent, militarily unnecessary, and strategically disappointing. Like, who am I going to rule now, girlfriend? Hashtag, that's right, ashes. Fatso. Keep this in mind, if you live in the United States. What do you think Fatso would be putting his time to if he wasn't defending the country? I guarantee you it would be something very dangerous. It would be something probably very nefarious, something that's not very healthy. So I'm thankful that Fatso has found something that he can focus his time on. And keep in mind, this is the abbreviated, truncated version. This is the Cliff Notes version of his email. I took about 30 minutes reading through it and trimming out anything that I considered like fat. Read the whole thing. Go to shadowntv.com. Go to the small council. Check it out. And what's funny about it is he's not the only one who wrote in. So a Marine Corps intelligence officer, uh, Mark, wrote in. And he was talking about basically how the scorpions would be ineffective uh, at certain angles and, and kind of echoing a lot of what Fatso was saying. And so then his wife... Uh, added on to it. And she was like, when my husband Mark said that he wrote you an email about dragon tactics, I was super psyched because I think the podcast is awesome. 
However, upon reading his forwarded copy, I noticed that what he humbly neglected to mention is that he was a graduate of Annapolis <laughs> and a highly accomplished Marine Corps intelligence officer for eight years. So he really does know what he's talking about, much like you, Big D. So noticeably, the Coast Guard and Navy are left out, but there's still episode six. I mean, today it's hard to tell who's been spending maybe 60 hours a week playing Counter-Strike or who's actually spent some time in the academies of the military. So, Mark, listen to your wife, Alicia include that, put that into your signature block. It gives you a little more credibility. So you're not some 400 pound kid living in his parents' basement playing Call of Duty. Not that there's anything wrong with that, guys. I'm talking to you, Brad. All right, Big D, that has been a marathon of emails. We owed it to the fans. We felt like we never had this opportunity to do Game of Thrones again. Uh, why not throw ourselves into it this week? I know it's 1 a.m. where you are, but I think it's time to break out those voicemails and wrap this show up. Oh, yeah. We got some good ones this week. We had a ton of them submitted, so I've, I've whittled it down. Uh, and the first one comes from Shane from Baltimore, and he's the one who said, you know what? Maybe John is not the good guy that we're giving him credit for. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Shane from Baltimore. Um, I'm really viewing John as the bad guy here. Everybody's burning because John can't man up and marry his aunt. If John would just get over it and marry Danny, like many women characters have had to do all in the past in the history of this show, in the history of this world of Westeros, women having to marry people they don't want to marry, they're grossed out by for one reason or another because it cements some alliance and guarantees some sort of peace. And all John has to do is marry Danny, and now they've got the love, of the people and Danny's on the throne and everything's fine, but John can't do it. And so now Danny has to do what seems pretty reasonable and not trust people who keep failing her. And John just can't marry her because ew. So we're supposed to believe that that's just okay, that John can't look past that and get over it. And I'm on Danny's side now and I wasn't even rooting her for her before, but now I feel like what the show's done to her, she deserves to be there. John should have just married her. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Yeah, Shane, three things about that. And I love this voicemail uh, because it was very persuasive. One is earlier in the season, we see the possible solution floated. They're like, well, what if John just says, yeah, I'm a Targaryen and a Stark and then marries Daenerys? Uh, what about that? And and the, the retort is given that it's like, well, that'd be somebody marrying his aunt. We just don't do that in Westeros. I'm like, Oh, do you? Do you do the entire destruction of a city? Like maybe people would be given the option. Like I, I think Daenerys could do whatever the fuck she wants. And Targaryens have been marrying Targaryens for centuries. So what, I, I don't see what the issue is there. That was a little weird. Um, as for the marriage thing, I think we should look at it from Daenerys' perspective, though, is that she doesn't want to marry somebody who doesn't love her. Like I think I don't think she'd be into the marriage for marriage's sake or you know or to keep the peace or whatever. She's she's definitely a woman who is who knows what she wants and she's not going to settle for less as for John being ewed out by his aunt. I don't think it's because it's his aunt. I think it's because he just watched her roast Varys alive and is on the war path. Like, I I'm sorry, but like Amelia Clark, nothing against her, but put in John's shoes, I wouldn't exactly be turned on either. Yeah. Romantic scene there would have been a little weird. You know, if John gets hot and bothered by that. Thank you very much, Shane, for calling in. Our next voicemail comes from Natalie, and she brings up something interesting about Drogon's ultimate fate. Hey, Big D. Hey, Jean. It's Natalie from Northeast Georgia, and I'm just, again, concerned about the dragons, and I'm wondering what's going to be the fate of Drogon. Uh, let's say that Arya or Jon or Tyrion or someone has this plot to really um, 
get rid of Daenerys because she is not the queen that we had all hoped that she would become, are they going to be able to keep Drogon um, reined in? Uh, is Jon going to be the new dragon rider, and is he going to, you know, um, be Drogon's, like, handler? Or are they going to have to um, eliminate Drogon as well because he um, is a threat? Uh, I've also seen online there's a bunch of rumors saying that Drogon potentially could be a female and that um, during the whole marine situation that she potentially flew off and hatched a bunch of eggs and all of a sudden all these, you know, baby dragons are going to pop up everywhere. I don't know. That seems a little too, like, Lord of the Rings to me. Um, I'm not sure how I would feel if that was the end result. But I'm really curious what other listeners have to say about this and what you guys have to say. Um, and before I leave, I would just like to say I am truly going to miss this podcast. I have absolutely loved every minute of it. I've shared it with so many friends. I've become like that weird, nerdy person that can only talk about this. And um, I guess I'll just have to watch The Watchmen so that I can listen along and uh, I'm ready for Westworld to come back. Thanks, guys. Uh, talk to you later. Natalie, it's not weird or nerdy. It's the coolest thing ever. All your friends think you're super cool because you listen to this <laughs> podcast. And yes, we'll be doing The Watchmen. And yes, you can also join us at chatthemovies.com and listen to our 80s and 90s movies podcast, which honestly, even if you're not an 80s and 90s movies fan, we mostly just talk about our dumb lives and it's, it's only partly about movies. With regards to the Drogon thing, I didn't even think about this. This is like the saddest thing I could think of because you have this this dragon who has been valiant and done everything asked of him. I don't blame him for anything that happened in King's Landing. Like he's doing what his mom tells him to do, like I, or her mom possibly. And the fact that this amazing creature, uh, the last of its kind in the world, could just be put down. No, this could be old Yeller, or maybe like uh, like The Walking Dead. Just look at the flowers, Drogon. Look at the flowers. <laughs> it would be heartbreaking, and I I might get emotional again. Like that is. Ugh. If the show ended like that, I would be yeah. fucking. I'm. I'm not doing the instacast. Well, I mean, there's only two ways it goes, right? Well, three ways. Daenerys, she has 180 degrees, becomes benevolent, like our dream world utopia, or she somehow stays in power, has to eliminate those that threaten her, John, Tyrion, all them, or they remove her from power. If you remove her, that's easy. But to put down Drogon, could you imagine John having to go out there and kill? How do you kill a dragon? He's like, you got to trick him somewhere. Well, maybe if Drogon's fire reverts back to like Viserion's level of fire, John could just hide behind some blocks. Remember how at Winterfell you could hide behind some blocks and Drogon's blowing up entire castles? Well, he, he also he had a venting issue. He was shooting out of his neck. We've already seen dire wolves put down, but this would take that to a next level. Uh, so, Natalie, thank you very much for the voicemail. So next up, our next voicemail came from Lori, and she had a bone to pick with your breakdown of, of plotters and pantsers. Hey, my name's Lori, and I uh, I think you misinterpret the difference between a plotter and a pantser. Um, that's really only for first drafts. So the fact that something is meandering, um, in terms of the storyline and plot, when you are a pantser, it should be all fixed by the time you have a finished product. So you, you just kind of write and write and write and write with the intent that you're going to revise it later. The fact that um, George R. R. Martin might have, like, some crazy meandering plot, I haven't read his stuff, um, doesn't mean that he um, is a pantser. It means that he's probably a bad editor. Anyway, I just wanted to um, correct that. Uh, bye. 
Thanks, Lori, for writing in. Uh, yeah, I should clarify. You're definitely right. It's it's about the the first draft of it. In Silverman's uh, piece that he wrote, Daniel Silverman from UConn, he talks about the fact that George R. R. Martin, when he drafts stuff, sometimes realizes that he can't fill the gaps in between. So he has to then uh, write pieces that fill those gaps. An example of it is Game of Thrones kind of went in like major plot arcs, right? Within this books, there are major plot arcs that begin and conclude, and then they have some continuity, but they definitely are, are conclusive arcs overall. After the first big plot arc, uh, according to Silverman, book four was actually originally going to skip ahead five years. And as he tried to do it, Martin didn't know how to make the gap feel true to the characters. So he decided that he had to write his way through the five years instead. And as he did that, he planted more seeds of characters and plot and watched those grow. And suddenly he had like what um, Silverman refers to as an overgrown garden, right? So then he had to start to prune it down, but that's hard to do without abrupt or forced resolutions. So imagine you're the staff of writers for Game of Thrones and we say, hey, we got to get to this end point. And if you were Martin, you would go, okay, in order to get to that end point, I need all these other things to happen. So I'm going to need to write that. And you don't have that time. You don't have that freedom, right? You got to make it fit. And so it's, it's. I guess the difference would be in this case is that is that Martin has had unlimited runway, essentially, in these books. And actually, they have taken him longer, both in a time perspective and a writing perspective than he ever imagined. And that's kind of what put things you know behind schedule. I don't think the guy's lazy or anything. But it does put the the double Ds in, in, a, in a weird predicament, and so they have to write. They're forced to write as as uh, plotters, and that you can you can feel that abrupt jarring struggle in season eight. Thank you very much, Lori. The next uh, voicemail comes from Courtney from PA, and she's talking about uh, projecting modern sensibility and morals on medieval and feudal states. Hey guys, it's Courtney K from PA. I'm calling in to um, comment on this week's episode of Game of Thrones and specifically on Danny. So I know we all have talked a lot about the previous examples of violence that um, we've seen in Danny, and I'm not going to go into detail about that because we all know that she has had a tendency toward violence throughout the show. But I think what we're failing to recognize is that violence is a legitimate way of solving problems in um, West Rosey society. You know, in our perspective, when looking at the show, I think it's important to note that as individuals, we're living in a technologically advanced system. And overall, we have, as a society, achieved a mostly peaceful way of existing. And in a lot of ways, our perspective is idealistic. But this isn't the way that Westeros works. They operate more in a, in a feudal type of society. And, you know, if you're not familiar with feudalism, Feudalism was a, a way of life that came about in Europe, um, and basically it had developed as a way to protect people. And, um, you know, lords were granted lands by kings, and the lords, um, you know, employed common people to work the lands. Um, they collected taxes um, from, from the earnings from the lands, and in return, they provided protection to the common folk. And, um, you know, at that time, there were Vikings and barbarians that were just ransacking, pillaging villages and, um, 
this was just a necessary way of life at that point in time. Um, you know, violence was pretty much the only method of solving problems. Peace mostly was unattainable during this time period. And I think Westeros, you know, um, has a lot of these characteristics as well um, as the Middle Ages. Um, you know, and I think that Danny, she had promised to be a different kind of ruler. And that's the part that really stings for those of us who really are invested in Danny because we really thought she could be. Overall, I think that the story of Danny is one of tragedy. And what we're watching unfold is what happens when the world isn't ready for a different kind of ruler. Um, in the end, I think Danny is going to be her own demise. And it's going to be because she can't keep her promises about the sort of ruler she can, she wants to be. Um, it's just not possible in that Westerosi society. My bold prediction for next week um, is that Danny will be the one to end her own life. I think that once she realizes what she's done, maybe she'll see all these corpses and, and you know, realize what she sacrificed in order to achieve her goal of sitting on the throne. And I think that ultimately this will be the tragic ending that I would find probably pretty satisfying. Um, as much as I hate to see this all unfold. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, let's go Team Targaryen. Why do we seem super cool with the Dothraki? <laughs> They're pretty bad dudes. You got to think about the way they used to go through. They kill indiscriminately. They rape. They pillage. Why all of a sudden, if, if she just starts to rain down fire, why now has it become such a big thing? People keep asking, she could have just flown the Red Keep and blown it up and it would have been over. Or she could have just had her army march up and take over the city. It was over. And the Lannisters had put down their swords. It was over. And it's not like she was flying around still killing soldiers. It was that she was taking out buildings and civilians and just indiscriminately killing. It was, you know, genocide, essentially. Courtney and I and lots of other listeners are like, yeah, well, you know, she didn't trust the people around her. She was angry. They'd taken everything away from her. Who knew if this surrender was for real or a trap or any of that stuff? I have a sinking feeling that the explanation is going to be that she flipped out, that the show is not as sophisticated as we thought. And the only reason I think that is throughout season eight, what we've seen is a tendency for us to overthink what they're trying to tell us and realizing, no, no, it's actually the simplest explanation. It's Occam's razor. She snapped and started killing everybody. Again, I don't want it to be that way. I never thought of it that way. When I watched this episode, I was very satisfied. I felt what Daenerys felt. Fuck all this shit. I'm frustrated with it. These people are all awful. I, there's no, I can't trust anybody here. I'm in danger. Kill everybody. I don't think that's what the show is going for after reviewing the after show materials. I just hope that next episode, she does not turn a 180 and regret what she's done. And, you know, like uh, Courtney suggests that she's going to commit suicide. Fuck no. If that happens, come on, own it. I, I learned my lesson. I burned the city down. I'm going to rule by fear. She's got to ride this out to the end. Anyway, we'll see next week. Our next voicemail comes from a frequent contributor and a co-host on the Dana Buckler show, Ashley Shaffley. And she's going to talk about uh, your introduction to character arcs in the last episode. 
Hi, y'all. This is Ashley Schlafly here. I just finished listening to the Instacast, and I'm actually sitting in a parking lot outside of HEB, the best grocery store in the world. And I had to call in because I think that, Jean, you did a fantastic job talking about the different character arcs that we experience here in the show, and specifically the culmination of them in this episode. But I, I wanted to just kind of bring up a couple of extra points and, and take exception to one particular one that you that you lay out. There are nine steps that are used to create characters, to set them on the path, their journey, on their arcs. And I won't go through all nine, but four of which that I think matter for this conversation here is that all characters have to have both a fear and a desire. The character becomes aware of their desire and they are not aware of their fear. And that is what creates the innate conflict for each character. And so in order for a character change to be successful, they have to overcome that fear in order to satiate that desire. And it has to be believable that they've done it in a way that would make sense for the character. So for example, if Voldemort at the end of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows was cool with Harry, the audience wouldn't buy it because it wouldn't be true to the character type that he was or his character arc that is developed as a result of his character type. So with that in mind, I just want to talk about Cersei because a lot of people are really upset with Cersei's end. And I know that you said that Cersei was a negative, uh, a decline arc, but I would argue that she's not. I would argue that she's more in line with what you described as an alteration arc or even more in line with a different type of character arc, which is the steadfast arc. But let's stick with alteration for the time being. So you did a great job of explaining the alteration arc, but there's one aspect that I just want to highlight, which is that in the alteration arc, the characters are the same. They're still shitty. It's just some aspect of their views change. Um, and so the, the fact of the matter is that that's why it's called a neutral character arc, because they, they aren't different at the end. So someone like Cersei, she's steadfastly committed to family, and she makes all of these choices in an effort to maintain her family. And at the end, she becomes aware of her fear, that fear we talked about at the beginning. Her desire is to maintain the Iron Throne for her family, but her fear is losing her children. And she doesn't realize that until the moment before her death. That is where the alteration happens. And so for her, because that's the most important thing we're supposed to take from Cersei, that's why I believe she's an example of the alteration arc, because she isn't different. She's still Cersei. She's still you know, not a good person, but she is so steadfastly committed to her desire. She becomes aware of her fear as a result of of obtaining her desire, which is keeping the Iron Throne for however long she kept it. Jeannie did a great job talking about realm versus dynamic characters. You know, the dynamic characters are, for those of us that are book readers, the characters that have their own chapters, the characters that we see through those third-person limited chapters that we read. And I think that the show did a great job of bringing those dynamic characters to the forefront throughout the series, except for Daenerys, because Daenerys has wound up on this character arc. Now, while I think it has been set in place, I, for one, think in the book, she's an example of maybe an, you know, maybe an an alteration arc. Maybe they're setting her up to be a hero's journey. Um, But in the show, she winds up on what's called an imbalanced arc, where she's violated her best interest. And I think that's the problem I have, because the other arcs are so well done. An imbalanced interest arc, in my opinion, is super lazy. That's the problem I have with it. 
awesome episode. Looking forward to the end. Thank you guys for all you've done. It sure has been a great journey with you. And I'm looking forward to the Watchmen speaking that into existence. So have a great day. Bye. Well, thank you, Ashley, for being so kind in your response. To level set here, Ashley has a PhD. I have a bachelor's degree in journalism from Arizona State University. I'm shooting arrows at a dragon here on this one. Yeah, I think we're on the Jon Snow side of the spectrum. <laughs> Very much, yeah. <laughs> so, so again, I think to clarify, I, I'm not arguing with Ashley by any means. She is 100% correct. I would say that I identified both Ned and Cersei as decline arcs, specifically because of the fact that I do think that their behavior drastically changed toward the end and that their end state was a culmination of decisions that they made that jeopardized themselves and the people around them. Cersei didn't just die alone. I mean, she certainly died next to Jamie, but also think of all the other people around her who died because of her decline. Ned, same thing. It wasn't just Ned that died. So many Northmen died along with him. And as a result of his actions also, uh, you know, Sansa suffered uh, torture. Arya went into hiding. There were so many other things that happened as a result of these poor character choices. And I think that Ned, when he ended, was a very different person from when the series started. Likewise, Cersei is definitely not the same person. Cersei in the beginning was flippant and sexy and full of life. And they made a choice to even make the way she dresses. Why does she have mom hair for the last like two seasons? I mean, certainly would have grown out by then, right? It was to really emphasize the fact that she has changed. Now, whether they pulled it off or not, that's debatable. But Ashley, I think that, that that's why I identified it. You know a lot more about character development. You know a lot more about character constructions. And so I bow down to your expertise. Thank you so much for calling in. Yes, thank you very much, Ashley. And I think what makes our show great is the diversity of our audience, right? So we just had Ashley come in with that advanced education, and she's breaking down character arcs. And then we get to Matt. Matt, I think this is officially, I'm going to say it. This is my favorite voicemail that we may have ever gotten. So I'm glad that Matt's calling in, and it's a very different voicemail than Ashley's, but I'll let Matt say it for himself. What's up, Crap on TV? This is about Game of Thrones. I'm talking to you, Levi Tiger, Lifting Disgusting, Big Bobby D, and Rod the Gopher. This is Matthew Ilda, but my <laughs> friends call me Matt. That last episode was a deuce ball. It got me all gassed <laughs> up, so I figured I'd buck my thoughts for the last episode. I think Tyrone will fight his arch nemesis, the top cupboard. Sergeant DeVito is going to end up a pharmaceutical company uh, CEO for men with erectile dysfunction. Danielle will be killed by the evening lord, as I believe he's simply melting, and will soon make a return as soon as a cold snap hits. Illyrio will then make an appearance in Westeros in order to sell the evening lord into sex slavery with the Dothraki. Martin cyclical motif will be completed. Jonathan Snow is going to find out he's actually the love child of Bobby B and Bessie with the big tits. <laughs> Tony Stark will use a pin particle to go back in time to stop Danielle from turning King's Landing into a barbecue pit. Macy Williams will finally become no one now that the show has ended. <laughs> this Count Melisandre will become Warden of Arendelle. Samuel Tolly We'll build a prosthetic dingus for Grey Works, and he'll change his name to Grey Snake. Fran invents a new breakfast food item. <laughs> Bron and Tripod and the sexual tension, and we'll finally hop in the sack so Bron can learn 
his secrets, hands on. Let me know what you think. <laughs> bye bye. Oh my god. I told you. I, t- I texted Gene today and I said, we got the best voicemail ever. Guys, I need to clarify that I don't laugh a lot, like in normal life. I will say that's funny. Uh, sometimes I may smile. I laugh on the podcast because I see Big D on screen. And so his reactions to what I'm saying sometimes make me laugh. That shit, I will listen to it 10 times tonight probably. What the hell? That was amazing. That was great. Thank you. We needed a good laugh there. Oof, bravo. So I think that's a perfect time for us to wrap this up. Thanks, everyone who wrote in and called in. That was uh, amazing. Some of the most fun I've had on the podcast. And we've only got one episode left to make this magic happen again, plus a couple of wrap-up episodes after that. Uh, So that concludes this week's episode of Shad on TV, Game of Thrones. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shad on TV. On Facebook, just search for Shad on TV podcast. The website, again, is ShadonTV.com, and you can email us your email for the small council or just to say hello at host at ShadonTV.com. Again, as a reminder, if you're writing in for next week's small council, the cutoff is at 5 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. So please get your email in before then. So we can consider it for uh, next week's small council. Also, if you want to call in a voicemail, Matt, please do. Uh, it's 914-719-SHAT. Uh, try to keep it tight as it will cut you off after a couple minutes. To support the podcast, uh, you can hit us up at shadontv.com slash PayPal slash Venmo or slash Amazon. We do appreciate any dollars you can throw our way uh, to help to keep the podcast running. Again, to keep us uh, stocked up during the lean months as we do uh, Shat the Movies and lead into The Watchmen, which may be awesome or people might hate. So, you know, we're going to commit to doing the whole season and it would really help to uh, to have a little bit of money in the bank to, to pay for all that. Uh, if you'd like to help us out with a survey to help us find sponsors and go to shadontv.com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes to complete. And we're everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review that helps the podcast grow. Also, as we mentioned before, you can check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we review 80s and 90s movies. It's at shatthemovies.com. And if you'd like to hear us do other TV shows, uh, we do cover Westworld, Taboo, American Gods, and True Detective, all at shatontv.com. On behalf of my co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert, and The King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Sunday for the Game of Thrones series finale Instacast. Thanks for listening, and keep those tissues handy. And go Team Targaryen.